All right. So this is the segment here we're going to be getting into is called Archetypal Analysis. We're looking into the Aesop's fable, The Fox Without a Tail, and we're going to be doing some analysis here and look at the hidden meaning that is in these quote-unquote children's stories. And I think that you'll be shocked to find there's a lot more going on here than you would have possibly imagined in the beginning. So The Fox and the Tail, uh, The Fox Without a Tail, starts off here um, let's read the full story through and then we'll go through an analysis it's a short story a fox that had been caught in a trap succeeded at last at much painful tugging in getting away but he had to leave his beautiful bushy tail behind him for a long time he kept away from the other foxes for he knew well enough that he would all, they would all make fun of him and crack jokes and laugh behind his back. But it was hard for him to, leave, to live alone. And at last he thought of a plan that would perhaps help him out of his trouble. He called a meeting of all the foxes, saying that he had something of great importance to tell the tribe. When they were all gathered together, the fox without a tail got up and made a long speech about those foxes who had come to harm because of their tails. This one had been caught by hounds when his tail had become entangled in the hedge. That one had been not been able to run fast enough because of the weight of his bush. Besides, it is a well-known he said, that men hunt foxes simply for their tails, which they cut off as a prize of the hunt. With such proof of the danger and uselessness of tails, said Master Fox, he would advise every fox cut theirs off if he valued life and safety. When he had finished talking, an old fox arose and said, smiling, Master Fox, kindly turn around for a moment and you shall have your answer. When the poor fox without a tail turned around, there arose such a storm of jeers and hooting that he saw how useless it was to try any longer to persuade the foxes to part with their tails. Do not listen to the advice of him who seeks to lower you to his own level. So that's the fox without a tail. That's the archetypal story. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty cool story, right? Got a, got a lot of uh, meaning here. And it, what's interesting is we're reading a story that was written over a, at least 2,000 years ago. This thing could be going back 10,000 years if you're talking about the lineage of where these stories derive. But at the most conservative estimates put this about 2,000 years ago. And yet we see that this is reflected in modern-day psychology. So if you hear all these people, they're, they're talking about these cultural changes and how the world's a different place. Um, well, stories written 2,000 years ago with a fox in it for children are still predicting our behavior down to the letter today. And so that's what we're going to kind of look at here is what is the, the meaning uh, to be extracted from this story. Obviously, there's the overt moral, but I think there's a lot more to this. And the first thing is we see this first line. So a fox that had been caught in a trap succeeded at last after much pain tugging and getting away, but he had to leave his beautiful bushy tail behind him. 
And we see this all the time. People get caught in some trap of the world. For some, it's debt. Others, it's gluttony. Some, it's lust. Others, addiction and more. We get caught in a trap. And many times, and Jesus actually tells us this. It's a fact. In uh, the scripture, he actually mentions how um, it's better to cut out your eye if it sins than to continue sinning. And it's tying in with this concept that to actually escape from the traps that we fall into in the world, it's at a great cost. It costs us a lot to break free of our sins. And a lot of times we actually lose a part of ourselves. And oftentimes it's a part of ourselves that we loved. And that is really profound. And that's what the fox is going through right here. This is not a joke. This is Satan's realm. In this dominion of the material realm, this isn't a game. These things are life and death. Falling into a trap of sin can literally take your life. It can take your tail. It can take your eye. These are things to be considered very gravely. This is why it's so important to avoid sin, because a small amount of sin can drag you in and ruin your life forever. And we see that the fox struggles with this. He takes all of his being. He's putting all of his effort in to escape from Satan's trap. And he does manage to, after putting everything he has into it, he's able to tug away, but it still claims his tail. And he takes his beautiful tail, something he was proud of, something he loved. And you might be saying, wow, that, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? And it is. It is harsh. But that's this. That's the reality of life. That's the realm. It's harsh. You know, uh, you, you have to, for example, you know, think about an alcoholic. Alcoholics, when they quit alcohol, a lot of times they have to cut off all of their friendships with people. You have to throw away your best friends because they bring you back into that habit. And so um, this is a truly profound insight into the nature of how dangerous and deadly sin can be. And this is something that Jesus told us from the beginning. So this isn't like we're catching you off guard with this. He said, if you want to come to my kingdom, you are going to be asked to sacrifice everything. You're going to have to give up every material attachment if you want to enter into the kingdom of God. I have to be held above the material realm. And that's the request he's making here. So it's he's not asking for your, just your tail. He's not just asking for your eye. He's asking for everything that you are. And that's uh, that's pretty crazy. So if we sin, guess what? Unless you're perfect, everybody sins. Everyone's going to at some point get caught in a trap like this fox did. And you're going to get caught and you're going to be asked to sacrifice something you love in order to follow God. So perhaps it's giving up drinking, giving up video games, giving up bikinis and more. But the only thing worse than giving up something you love is giving up the truth in exchange for the things that you love. Now, we move on to the second line here, which is, for a long time, he kept away from the other foxes, for he knew well enough that they would all make fun of him and crack jokes and laugh behind his back. But it was hard for him to live alone, and at last he thought of a plan that would perhaps help him out of his trouble. Now, when you listen to this, he's starting to cast a paracosm. That's a, a fictional world in his head. He's assuming variables and then projecting that into the world and perceiving that as if it's real. So he comes and he tells himself he's, he's controlling his behavior. 
Notice he didn't go and talk to any foxes. He just knows. And guess what? He doesn't know that they're going to mock and laugh him at him. We watched at the beginning here. He suffers this trauma. And now what he's doing is he's creating a delusion that can't be falsified. Because if you listen here at the end, he says, think about this. He says, without evidence, he knows people are going to be making fun of him and snickering, right? And then he says that they will judge him for his lack of tail. And finally, he creates and solidifies the delusion that can't be falsified, which is even if they don't say anything to me, even if I don't see them snicker and laugh, they will still be doing it behind my back when I'm not looking. So he's created this psychological snare. He's gone out of one trap into another satanic trap, except this one is far more dangerous because now he is going to walk forward and enact the sin of Satan, where he tries to bend truth to his will. And that is what inevitably causes him to suffer far greater than just the loss of his tail. The tail, by comparison, is far less of a threat. And it's an insidious psychological trap. And you see people do this all the time. They cast themselves this trap on themselves. And Satan doesn't just let you get away out of a trap easily. He's always sitting there right on the sidelines waiting to snare you back in. So you've got to be really careful about these things. And one of the easiest times to snap up a soul is one that just recently broke free. I'm free. Yes, I overcame that thing. Oh, that's great. Why don't you turn that into an element of pride? Why don't you go and make that about how you were great, how you were wonderful, how you overcame that problem? And now let me identify as how I, I'm uh, – not I don't drink. I'm overcome alcohol. I'm an alcoholic. I don't drink. I'm wonderful. And you need to bend to my will. Society needs to change for me because I'm an alcoholic. That's the sin of pride to try and bend reality because of the loss that you had to take pride in your sin or your overcoming of sin. Either one is wrong. Instead, it's thankful. Thank God that he had broke me free of the sin. Thank God that I was able to escape from this problem. And I'm not going to expect other people to bend to my will because of the struggles that I had, that kind of thing. And so very common trap we see Satan set. Now, because the fox is holding on to something other than truth and logos, like Christ, as the highest judge, he's putting something else into the position of God. And this is where we get the uh, sin of Satan. He's replacing the worship of truth, which would be to say, I've lost my tail. I suffered. This sucks. But you know what? I have to move on because this is the lot I have in life. This is the sacrifice God asked of me to enter his kingdom. But instead, he places social shame as his new God. So now he's terrified of the social ridicule. And that's what he's trying to overcome. Now, if the fox had sacrificed his tail and accepted this burden, he could have just given it up and he wouldn't have fallen into this new mental trap. And it wouldn't have worked because he'd go social shame. It's like, I don't, I'm not doing this for the society. I'm doing this because I want to honor God. That's the reason that he chose to do it. So now he starts isolating himself from society. And that is not good. And it's a profound, because these are quote unquote children's stories from 2000 years ago. And yet they are perfectly showcasing 
the psychological behavioral patterns that we see today, right now. This is what people do. These were people with no internet, massive cultural changes between then and now, huge histories. We have have new school systems that have come and go gone we've had plagues come and go we've had famines we've had wars all of this has gone on between then and now the enlightenment philosophy nietzsche socrates all of these things and yet the story is still predicting the behavior of a person today and what they do when they experience trauma it, it's the world does not change people there's nothing new under the sun this is not um, it is a pendulum. It's a pendulum that swings. As Nietzsche says in his book, The Gay Science, he talks about this where he says, um, you know, how great is it to know that the pendulum always swings back and there is a time for us as well. And that's terrifying when you consider who Nietzsche is. But if you consider the uh, antithesis to that, which is that it's always a swinging pendulum. We know that this is Satan's domain. We know what our job is to do here. We pop up for a brief moment, maybe a hundred years at max. We grab as many of our men into our kingdom as we can, try to bring them to the kingdom before we fade away. And that is what we know from the biblical perspective. But if you don't have that, like, look at this. The internet didn't change this. The internet, access to basically all of human knowledge in your pocket did not change this behavioral pattern. Now, the person here is called to sacrifice something that others are not called to sacrifice because they fall into a trap. And because of that, that's their new lot in life, they give it up. But alas, they start creating this paracosm where they're going to be shamed in their heads for their sacrifice. So what do they do? they isolate themselves from society to allow their cancerous ideas to start metastasizing. And isolation, guys, is no joke. It's considered one of the strongest forms of torture that we have. Think about that. The, the highest punishment we have for criminals is an isolation chamber. That's as high as we go. In fact, they did a study with chimps and they placed baby chimps in cages. And in one cage, they provided a real mother with no food. And in another cage, they provided all the abundance of food and desirables you could want, but a wire-framed mother of a fake gorilla, essentially. The monkeys were willing to starve to death to have human connection and not be isolated over food. That's how powerful a force we're talking about here. Isolation is devastating to the psyche. We are not able to handle it as people. And that's one of the reasons that those are, who are responsible right now for these social isolation policies, they should be charged with crimes against humanity. And I personally think they should all be executed. This is a well-known scientific fact. They implemented this I'm a dude on the internet who calls myself a wizard and I'm familiar with the monkey study. So you're telling me the people who are in charge of putting out entire swaths of social policies that will in fact kill millions of people. And there, this is going to happen. They, the suicide rates are through the roof and we're not even at the crux of the worst part of this problem, which is the reintroduction to society. When we isolate people, 
and then we let them back out into society. How well does that go when we take criminals, lock them away for five years, throw them into a war zone, lock them in isolation chambers, and then let them back out into society? How does that work? How, how often has that been a success story? Not very often, right? We're about to do that with most of the Western civilization. So these people are likely going to be killing millions of people, and it's their fault, and they're directly responsible, and they have no right to say, well, we weren't informed. We didn't know the consequences. If you don't know the consequences of isolation, and you're in a position to force it upon millions of people, then that's either gross negligence, and it's a crime against humanity, or you knew it, and it's a literal war crime. This is unacceptable and so it's bad it's really 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 bad and this flu didn't kill anyone anywhere near as many people um as the suicides have and it hasn't even started there are far more people who have died of suicide because of these isolation chambers that are being forced on the public against their will than this flu did this was a regular flu it was a flu season it had no impact outside of the regular flu aside from evil people who forced isolation onto innocent people and drove up the suicide rates it's insane absolutely tragedy the sociological ramifications of intentionally inducing a psychological assault on the population are going to be astronomical and so that's why again we don't just talk doom and gloom around these parts here instead we're going to say what's the solution and it's simple we've been talking about it since day one and we'll keep talking about it here prepare prepare for this build communities don't be isolated hang out with your friends grow your own food go to church don't comply with their demands just do that stay safe and there's going to be a lot of crazy people in the near future when we let all the people out of their isolation chambers you're going to be letting out what is no different than a mentally deranged person to the street you have someone who's been told that there's magic viruses floating around that are going to kill them and that the other people are the enemy and that they need to hide their face hide their shame from the world and rub their hands rub their hands with sanitizer get those germs off get the germs off get the germs off oh no there's another one another one's coming and this is going to be released into the public deranged people that were not deranged before but we're intentionally made to become deranged people by our governments, and they should be held accountable for that torture. Now, with that being said, we see that this fox is presented with the classic isolation dilemma as well. He's left to fester in his fictional world. He's creating this delusion in his head. He's making these stories up about what other people will think about him. And so where does that guide him towards? Well, that isolation eventually leads either to what we talked about before, which is the suicide route, or you go to the path of Satan. How can I bend reality? How can I make truth different so that it represents what my will is? How can I go against truth and make my life better? Now, you might recognize that's the sin of Satan. It's the, here's the truth, but I know better than the truth. These humans won't rule over me. I was here when the universe was made, and you're going to tell me these monkey-human-god hybrids will rule over me in heaven? Absolutely not. I don't care that you told the truth. I'll make my own truth, the sin of Satan. And this is a much graver sin than just losing his tail, because with his tail, 
He simply got caught in a trap. But now he's plotting against God consciously. He's saying, I know what the truth is, and I want to make the truth different. And again, and I, I keep coming back to this, but this is 2,000 years ago. Aesop's diagnosing more accurately the psychological behavior of a person than any PhD psychologist I've seen in the last 35 years. You have these idiots who say society's evolving, it's woke, times have changed, or the so sociologist. It's capitalism, man. All the problems are because of capitalism. No, no, and then on the right, it's all because of socialism. It's not socialism that's doing it. No, 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 and then you got the libertarians. It's economics. Economics is the reason why. It's not economics. And they couldn't be further from the truth. Aesop's disproving your theories right now. He's showing you guys none of that actually changes. This is the they were in dictatorships, monarchies, kingdoms. They half of them couldn't even put food on their table. They were getting rushed off to war. And yet the behavior that's in this story is reflected right now in today, despite being in capital. Well, we're not really in a capitalist system, but you, you get a republic, a socialist republic, the Western societies, the dictatorships of North Korea. This story happens in all of those places, despite economics, despite the system, despite the evolution of culture, the wokeness, all of this stuff. It's still the same thing. It's all still happening right here, right now. And nothing has changed. So we move on to point number three here, line number three. He calls a meeting of all the foxes, and he says that he had something of great importance to tell the tribe. Does that sound familiar? Out of the abyss. Oh, oh, we're getting a phone call right now. We're going to go ahead and hang up on that. Uh, out of the abyss of the isolation on the Internet comes out the cries of a psychologically deranged group. They announced that what they have to say is extremely important. And if it's ignored, then you are essentially saying that you agree with hate. And how insistently will they just sit there and spam their message to the world, trying to get everyone to listen to their abysmal attempts to bend reality? This is why you'll find out and this is true. They actually did a study on this. Uh, well, they haven't done a study on this, I should say. Um, but you should just trust me. I'm a wizard. <laughs> and I mean that with all the, the, the joke that goes along with that. You, you shouldn't just trust wizards on the Internet. But I think you will find that when you study uh, this group of people who are hungover, jobless, drug addicts with purple hair, and they're losers, and they wave signs, you're going to find that there's a lot of mental illness in that group. I think you're going to find that the mental illness is significantly higher in these groups of people walking around waving signs with purple hair that are drug addicts and don't have jobs. And there was a study that was conducted and reproduced, which is pretty crazy because they don't reproduce studies anymore. People gave up on that because science became a religion. Um, but they reproduced this one, and it showed that 66% of white liberal women are mentally ill. 66%. That's right. The vast majority of white liberal women are literally, not figuratively, literally insane. So to put this into perspective, people, the entire population of the world, only 13% of people are diagnosed with mental illness. Their population group 
is 66%. That means that if you look at an average woman, there is a very high chance, a way more than a coin flip chance, that they're literally an insane person. So you have to take this into consideration, people, because why would you take the words of a madman seriously? It doesn't make sense. You should not listen to these people. You should feel bad for them. The same way that you feel bad for a schizophrenic person who's wandered out of a psych ward. Ah, ah, the, the aliens are coming for me. They're trying to catch me. You don't listen to their alien story. You say, oh, no, no, that's, I'm so sorry. Here, let me help you find your way back. These are lost animals. These are not people who are thinking rationally. They're insane people. And that comes out of this isolation these people go they lock themselves away and they, they cut themselves off from society they get wrapped up in these psychological delusions and they're and they're typing away typing away typing away and then out of the blue they come out and they say everyone should accept the way i am i'm right i'm normal i'm good and if you say otherwise it's hate it's hate and that's a crazy person it's a psychopath coming out to tell the community how we all need to change to meet their derangement and we see the fox doing that right here so why what are we supposed to do what's the solution this is a big problem in society this is keeps coming up in the news people keep talking about this aesop's fable gave us the answer to this two thousand years ago and we're going to find out what is his answer so uh we'll move on to point number four here which is when they were all gathered together the fox without a tail got up and made a long speech about those foxes who have come to harm because of their tails. So, a long speech. A long speech? Like, come on. This, again, guys, 2,000 years ago, and this guy is predicting the behavior of people on social media and their writing patterns. Down to the way that they will write. Big blocks of text. How many of you have been on social media when all of a sudden one of these psychos worms out with their obese purple hair and they're like, just, just a wall of text. Just, 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 and, and it's just nonsensical, deranged, the writings of an actual madman. And Aesop's fable is literally telling you that's what they're going to do. It's this long-winded attempt to manipulate truth and reality and tell everyone else they're the good person, you're the bad person, and, I mean, God, it's so obvious. Vanity, thy name is woman. It's the most classic, classic thing. And and we see it all the time, and yet Aesop's Fables telling us about this. Gosh, what's I don't even centuries is a hundred years. What's is it millennia? Two millennia, two millennia ago. Um, let's see here. So let's move on to the next line here. Right, hold on. Let's see. Awesome. All right. So uh, this one has been. So now we're going to listen to what his argument is. So this one has been caught by the hounds when his tail has become entangled in the hedge. That one has not been able to run fast enough because of the weight of his bush uh, brush. Besides, it's a well-known, he said, that men hunt foxes simply for their tails, when they cut off, uh, which they cut off as prizes of the hunt. With such proof of the danger and uselessness of having a tail, says Master Fox, he would advise every fox to cut it off if he valued life and safety. 
And I, I bet you can guess this. You can guess the crux of his argument. This is just ancient sign waving of an obese blue haired wall of texture. That's all it is. It's the same exact bit. It's what is it? What's what's going to be the crux? Victimhood. That's right. Look at how much of a victim I am. But hold on. If I come out and say how much of a victim I am, that's a little vain, right? So what do we do? We want to manipulate people. We're evil. We're psychopaths. So look at how much some people are victims. I'm a victim, but other people are also victims too. And so we see all the poor little victim foxes that they've invented in their head. Think about that. It's, it's, it's literally the same story. It's the same, I'm a victim, and there are other people who are victims. And look out how dangerous it is. We, we got to protect them. We got to keep them safe. Is this is this scaring anyone yet? Are you getting chills at how this exactly like this is encoded into this old story, and it, and it's cutting through. I, you could literally copy paste this onto Facebook, and, and I, you could spend fifteen minutes scrolling through. Yeah, fifteen minutes scrolling through, and you would find 15, 20 examples of this. It, it's insane. And now he's telling the public how people who don't have tails are victims. And it's because um, he goes through and he picks out isolated incidents and he portrays them as if they're common or the complete story. Remind you of any of these victim groups? He then blames whoever he perceives as the group that's in power over his fellow group so that they can agree on a common enemy. And he finally takes that common enemy and he extrapolates it out to this ghostly boogeyman that can't be seen, it can't be observed, it can't be touched. But, trust me guys, it exists. It's systemic tail hunting. Trust me guys, you can't isolate any proof of this, but this toxic tail hunting needs to stop. There is systemic tail hunting in our society, people. And if you don't see it, it's because you're being you're being lied to. You're a self-hater. You're a victimizer of yourself. You're self-victimizing yourself for not seeing systemic tail hunting. All of this. All of this in this paragraph right here. <laughs> and of course, to finalize it all up and for the safety of the community. The fox insists that everyone else needs to mutilate themselves to make the fox feel like he isn't bad, wrong, or broken. Is that not the call to action of all these sign-waving, purple-haired, obese people? It's insane. Absolutely insane. Hold on, OPBs. Let's get her on the uh, mic here. Oh, we just heard a loud noise from my machine, so if the stream just dies all of a sudden, um, my apologies, guys. We'll be right back. All right, OPBs is on the mic. I just want to point out that Athena Zowels in the comments said, Grow out of it all, Trump. All right. I think he is surprised at how accurate this fits into today's. Oh, right. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? Today's <laughs> events. It, it, insane. And, and by the way, I didn't go and cherry pick this story either. I literally opened up to the first story that I opened up to, and I was like, This is the story I'll analyze. Th literally, this. It, it's not, no cherry picking here whatsoever. It's insane. <laughs> it's insane. Um, and so now we get to the solution. 
When he had finished talking, an old fox arose and said, smiling, Master Fox, kindly turn around for a moment and you shall have your answer. So the elder fox, I don't know, you might call this the boomer fox, sees through the deception and calls out the insane behavior of the fox and exposes it by pointing out his missing tail. Now, the fox's deepest fears are realized not because of his missing tail, but because of his manipulation. That's why he's now being ridiculed. So we see that happen here. When the fox without a tail turned around, there arose such a storm of jeers and hooting that he saw how useless it was to try any longer to persuade the foxes to part with their tails. And so now the, mox the fox is mocked. And they're mocking him. They're snickering at him for his. But it's not because his tail's missing. It's because they know he's ashamed of his tail missing and that he wanted to take pride in his damage. And once the fox was mocked and ridiculed by society, the foolishness is brought to an end. So finally, we see do not listen to the advice of him who seeks to lower you to his own level. Never listen to their advice. A woman, re let's, let's retell this story for a modern day, shall we? A woman rejects God and chooses to follow the herd. She read feminist blogs, so she dyes her hair blue. She stuffs her face with food, downs wine, pops Xanax to deal with the stress of her daily denial of reality, because now she believes in feminism, which is the antithetical to reality. She starves herself. Then she stuffs herself. Then she vomits. Repeat. She's living in hell, and it took her mind. So she goes to Twitter, and she writes about how being a beautiful and happy woman is a sign of evil and oppression, that men are using it to control you, and the reason you are happy is actually a trap to control your mind. In fact, all of society is run by an invisible force called the patriarchy that can't be quantified, observed, or detected, but it's there under the surface trying to control everyone. So, for the safety and future of women, you must be a feminist too. Or else, you will endanger not only yourself, because you're becoming self-victimized woman, but all women will be enslaved because of your choices. Then an old boomer comes on Twitter and points at the blue-haired pig woman on the screen and said, Have you checked out her profile picture? You should, and then decide if you want your life advice coming from that. The internet then looks... They laugh and they ridicule her. And no one listens to the advice of the feminist again. And so the pig feminist, when you went on to sully herself in the mud bath of shame that she had created. That's a retelling of the story here. That's the fox without a tail. And that's how we defeat the problem, people. We need to bring back social shame and ridicule for disgusting people. It's not... We cannot continue to lie to ourselves and deny the truth. If we do, society will collapse, and then it will rebuild under what I'm telling you right now. So we can skip that collapse part if we want. We could skip it, and we could just all start social shaming each other again and bring back morality to society. Or we can wait for society to collapse and rebuild again, and morality will win again. Because, people, this story, and I will say it one more time, was written 2,000 years ago. There is no societal change. There is no software. There is no AI. There is no program. There is no cultural training. There is no sociology. There is no psychology. There is no persuasion that you will ever craft that is going to change the fox without a tail.
ever. We're human beings. This is a 2,000-year-old case study. Nothing has changed. So prepare yourselves accordingly, people. And that is the fox without a tail. Woo! That's a fox without a tail. Hope you guys enjoyed that analysis. Let's get some thoughts, comments, questions in the chat. How are we doing? Let's get OPB's on the mic. And uh, then we're going to be hopping on here in just a bit over into IRL time manipulation spells from Seneca. We're going to be teaching you guys how to access the time spells that billionaires use to get stuff done that you don't know about in just a bit. So Alex hops in chat. He says, the patriarchy, the everyone panic. Exactly. exactly. It's just like, so oh, no. it's this magical force. And I want to point this out also because this is important to state. This is not just liberals that are doing this. Republicans are doing. Now, liberals are the easiest ones to find because liberals tend to be spoiled, rich, entitled people that come from families that had money and now they don't work. And so they just live off their parents. And so they have a lot of time to spend on social media. But Republicans do the same thing. If you've ever heard Republicans talking about the Illuminati is the one holding us down, man, it's, it's the same story. It's there's no difference. There's only one true dichotomy. Are you for Christ or are you against Christ? This realm is run by a being that is against Christ. If you go against Christ, then the world will reward you and then you will suffer. You will fall into traps and you'll be destroyed. If you go against, if you go for Christ, the world will hate you. You'll be ridiculed. You'll be censored. People will treat you like crap and you will get to build the kingdom of God. That's the choice. There's no other, there's no other secret system out there trying to hold you down. Um, and actually, that's not even true. There probably is. There's probably a ton of secret systems out there. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It, it's not, you're not important enough. To, and if you become so important for them to care about you, you've made a lot of mistakes getting to that point in your life. So that's more or less the, the, the state of the world. Very true. <laughs> so how are you doing, OPs? I'm doing great. I love this story. I love the parallels. I think it's really important for people to realize. Right. It's crazy. And... I think it points, I don't know, it just points out a lot of things going on now. I can't wait to do more of these. We, we've got Aesop's Fables. We've got uh, Grimm's Fairy Tales. We've got uh, the fairy tale, like the original fairy tale. Now, this one, I'll, I'll pull it out. Let's do it. I might, I might knock everything over. Uh, I got it. Fairy Tales by Anderson. And this one is like the deep, deep, deep lore. Um, this is crazy. Like, I can't even read the English of this book. So the way that this works is, um, actually, I might be mistaking this. <laughs> I am. Okay, there's a different book, but it's similar in thickness to this. But it literally has old English on one side and that it has the modern English on the other because the English is so old that you literally can't read it today. Like it, it doesn't make, it sounds like gibberish. You're like, what am I reading? But it is English. It's just but. so old that it's changed that much. That's awesome. Crazy, right? But, but what's yeah. I think most astounding is the language is still consistent. Like it's still English words. Very, very odd. So I, I'm interested. I'm just not, I'm going to have to practice. What? The meaning of the word no the, the meaning hasn't like changed the structure of the sentences yeah yeah the, the 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 core of the language remains the same so it's like the the purpose is still the soul if you will of the language is there yeah it's very it's very interesting 
All right. So uh, with that, shall we move on to time dilation or dilation time manipulation cells? All right. Let's take a look here. And I'm glad. I'm glad. That's that. I think I muted you again. All right. OPV says that she enjoys this and thinks it's very educational. OPV says that she is thinks it's important. People get hung up on words. Very good stuff. All right, so practical philosophy here. IRL, time manipulation spells. This comes to us from the book from Seneca on the shortness of life. So imagine, if you will, a billionaire. Why is it that a billionaire is able to get done in a month what you likely will never get done in a lifetime? It's a good question, right? And Seneca was observing this 2,000 years ago as well. This hasn't changed. This is another one of those instances where, and you might be telling yourself, you're like, Tyler, come on. We have the internet now. The internet changes everything. No, no, it doesn't change everything. Because back in the day when all these people had to do was pick, pick some corn and busy themselves with making more children, and that was it, they were still procrastinating. <laughs> they were still found ways to procrastinate. They still found useless ways to spend their time when they didn't have flashing boxes of entertainment. They didn't have these screens in front of their face. They didn't have board games. They didn't have video games. They didn't have pencils or paper to write on. You had to basically be a master scholar and rich to be able to afford a pencil and a paper. And yet they still procrastinated all the time. And his rules are the same things that applied then are still the same problems that apply today. We just found different tools to distract ourselves with. So the first thing that Seneca teaches us on how to manipulate time. And so this is the kind of the goal of this lecture here is by the end of this, you're going to be able to do in a few hours what many people won't be able to accomplish in a month. And that is all given to you with this ability. It's almost like imagine you're able to take your lifetime and quadruple it, 10x it, even 100x it. The better you get at this, the more lifetime you can have. Now, is that quantified lifetime? Say it's 100 years, right? You got this 100 years. Is it actually now 1,000 years? No, but you are able to accomplish in that 100 years what other people wouldn't do in 1,000 years. So in a way, you're able to manipulate time itself and accomplish more in the same period of time by applying Seneca's philosophy. And the first F method he has here is what I've kind of, and what I'm trying to do here is I'm not qualified to be a philosopher. I'm not going to try and write anything on philosophy for myself, probably until I'm 39. I don't think that I'm qualified. I have way too many smart people to read. I have way too many great minds to consume. But what I can do is I can try and take their messages and make them simpler and easier to understand for the modern day. I'm an advertiser and a marketer. I'm an ad copy guy. That's what we do is we simplify ideas and make them easy to digest and understand. So that's what we're trying to do here. So I will use some more modern terminology, but this is not an exception for not reading the book. Please go read the books. They're available in the Wizard Library. If you want that, get the self-learning course for free. We talk about the Wizard Library there. It does cost money. 
Seneca's books in there as well as a bunch of others, but please get the book and read it as well. I am not a substitute for reading the book. So the first technique that he goes into here is time investment. So imagine your life in front of you. The days are in front of you and it's, this, you know, those carnival tickets, you know, that big reel of carnival tickets and you pluck them off. Every day you can pluck off one of those tickets and that's your day. And you get to choose to deposit that into anything. So you could go and put that into sitting around in bed all day and that costs a ticket. You could also put that into planting a tree outside. Now, you go and you sit in bed all day. What does that produce? Well, it's temporary. It rots. It depreciates. It decays. It has no long-term value. Or I can put that ticket into planting a garden, and that's going to grow and thrive and produce future value for myself. So by thinking about your time as an investment, you can start to really, really boost your productivity because now you can start thinking about how you're eliminating bad investments. And that's a big part of this is how many tickets have you invested into Netflix for six hours? If you do that once or twice a month, still think about how much you could do with that time. Absolutely insane. And you eliminate those bad habits you can then also start to invest into things that are more powerful investments, seeds that grow. And here's the craziest part. There are some investments that if you invest into them, they don't just, they don't just grow compound interest. You may be familiar with the term compound interest. So this is where in uh, business you put in some money. So you put in $1,000 and then every month that goes by, you get a little bit of interest. So you might have $1,001 and then $1,002. Well, over time, you gain more and more money. Why? Because it's not $1,000 and then $1,002. It's $1,001 and then it's $1,002.10. And then it's $1,003.20. And so on. And so you're multiplying over time, the more time that goes by, the bigger your investment is growing passively. And that's called compound interest. This is what made Warren Buffett a billionaire. Time is even more powerful than that because not only does time has compound interest, meaning the more information you learn, the earlier you learn it, the more value it will have over time because you're able to learn from great minds and apply that knowledge into the future. That's the compound interest of time. But it's also fractal. You get fractal returns on time as well. Think about this. You're not just going to get the compound interest. That compound interest then warps together with all the other things that you're learning and combines together to amplify the compound interest. So the person who learns, who reads Seneca, gets the compound interest of Seneca over time. As time goes on, the value of Seneca becomes more and more valuable because there's more and more opportunities to apply the principles and this value increases. But if you then go and read Marcus Aurelius, his lessons also gain compound interest. But Marcus Aurelius's principles also work alongside Seneca's to make both of their principles grow even faster. And then multiply that out by 54 books that are in the wizard library. That is the fractal nature of time investments into knowledge, wisdom, 
gaining experience, practical skills, real world investments. There's nothing, there's no, and you could probably, you could ask Warren Buffett this. Is there anything that you can invest in other than yourself that's going to get you better returns? They're going to tell you across the board. No, nothing beats investing in yourself and your education and gaining knowledge. And that's not college. That is not high school. This is true education. You need to learn to think. And so that's what time investment model is. So if we start imagining our time as money, you're going to really start eliminating a lot of bad habits and you're going to start at tapping into this fractal and compound return that time investments are as you start to learn and gain knowledge. Well, PVs looks a little confused. Is there anything I need to say to simplify that a little bit more? Let's make this. I know it's a complicated topic. I know it's hard. Let, let's let's make it sure is, we got it. It is complicated, and I'm not very philosophical, so I'm just sitting here trying to think it through. Yeah. So, so what I get from it is with time, it's basically taking the time that Seneca spent forming his thoughts and writing them down, and you basically get that time from him as well. You do so it's get like that. Your time and his time growing over time. Correct. Is that so, true? So that is an aspect of this. So Seneca is saving you all this. Uh, he's put a lifetime into a book. That's true. But what we're really talking about is the sooner that you learn about this time investment strategy, the sooner you're able to apply it. So applying this time management strategy in your 20s makes it way more valuable because you have 75 to 80 years to utilize that process. So it gets more and more value over time the sooner that you start and the longer that that wisdom goes on. So once you've started applying his principle, it continually gets more and more value. So you could think of it like diet and exercise. The sooner that you learn how to eat well and work out well and develop those habits, the more value you get over time. You could think of it like an old man. Who's going to benefit more from learning about diet and exercise and changing their life? A guy in his 20s or a guy in his 70s? And it's because he has more time to apply that knowledge and get the reap the rewards throughout that. So it's similar to that. And that's kind of what he's talking about. Now, the fractal nature is saying, so let's break that into two. You could learn about diet and you could also learn about exercise and you could also learn about sleep. All of those things give compound interest, right? Yeah, so the, those all give you compound interest, but they also work together because as you get better at exercise and you get better at uh, diet, both of those produce a better result of health. They work together, so you get more results over time, not just because of exercise, not just because of diet, but because of their working together, that kind of thing. So that's the, the fractal nature. Is that more clear? Awesome. All right. Sweet. Thank you. I like having you tell me when it's complicated. I want to get it simpler and simpler. That's the goal. It's hard because Alex's faces are like, what? I don't know why you're looking at me strange. Why, why are you asking if I have something to say? And you're like, oh, okay. All right. Well, I guess she doesn't have anything to say. She just does that. It's just something she does now. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So we'll move on to technique number two, which is called single tasking. I think this one's a lot simpler and easier to understand and hugely beneficial. You've heard of multitasking. You've heard that multitasking isn't possible. That's typically where your teachers stopped in school, right? They didn't mention that the average person can only go about 10 minutes without trying to multitask, did they? No, no, they didn't tell you that. They also definitely didn't tell you that every minute you add to that is a minute closer to being so good at something that you could literally make about $100,000 a year while only working two to four hours a week. They didn't tell you that part, did they? Of course they didn't. The school system hates you and they want you to suffer. So they didn't teach you this information. In the land of multitaskers, the single tasker is king. Start mastering this skill of single tasking. The best in the world at this technique, this would be your millionaires, your billionaires, your top performers, they cap out at about three hours. The top performers can do single tasking in one session for three hours and they're done now you might be like ty i could do three hours in a heartbeat try it <laughs> try it sit down and try and do one thing for three hours and only that thing you cannot divide it into different projects you can't divide it into oh well i was actually working on um a marketing funnel, which has ad copy and email, and it has uh, Facebook ads, and it has ad copy. No, 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 no. Do the ad copy. Just do the ad copy. That's it. And not just the ad copy. The ad copy for emails. That's specific. One thing. Do that. You'll find suddenly you're grasping at your phone. Suddenly you're trying to listen to a YouTube video in the background. Suddenly you've got five tabs open on YouTube. <laughs> Suddenly you're reading a book. You're drinking. You're getting a drink. You're getting coffee. You're, you're going to be amazed to find out that what you thought was the easiest thing in the world is actually very, very difficult. However, the rewards of mastering this or getting better at this and striving for that three-hour benchmark the rewards are literally the potential to be able to make $100,000 a year and work two to four hours a week. That's the reward. Or to make your dreams come true, to be a millionaire, to make art, to create whatever you're trying to accomplish. This is a skill set that will increase the quality and performance in everything that you try. So I highly, highly recommend investing into single tasking as a time manipulation spell here. If you get better at this and you can get up to, say, even just a few hours or one hour, heck, even 30 minutes. One of the top copywriters in the world, his name is uh, Eugene, I almost called him Eugene Berger, who is a fantastic magician who has passed away recently. And my gosh, he's, he's a loss to the magic community and wonderful, wonderful mage, master storyteller as well. I'm trying to find his book. It's called Breakthrough Advertising. You can find it. Um, Breakthrough Advertising. He recommends just doing 30 minutes. He says shoot for 30 minutes is enough to make yourself a millionaire. That's it. It's that simple. 30, 30 minutes, you can be a millionaire with a skill set. And he actually gives a systematic approach to that of 30 minutes on, 20 minute break. 30 minutes on, 20 minute break. Gene Schwartz. There we go. Gene Schwartz is the person who wrote that book. And uh, if you're interested in buying that book, th there's a 
kind of ongoing joke about the book, but it's almost like Dogecoin in a way. So people will trade that book for thousands and thousands of dollars. There are cheaper versions available. I'd recommend getting those instead, unless you're a collector of old books. Um, just, just as a heads up, Olgavi is having a similar thing as well. And I know I recommend him a lot. So just look for the addition. The words are what matter people. So get the words. It's not the collector, unless that's your thing. If you're into that kind of thing, totally get it. That's, that's fine. Just, just as a heads up there. Cause a lot of people hear, Oh, Eugene Schwartz. They type it into Amazon. It's like $6,000. What? And it's like, I'm not telling you to go buy a $6,000 book. There are cheaper ways to get that book. So just just as a, a little, little side tangent there. So that's the second step here. That's single tasking here. Now, the third one is a fantastic filter. This comes to us. We've heard this quite often from Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, Cicero, all of them. And this is putting energy into what you can control. If you go and apply the two principles we just talked to, and then only put your energy into things that you can actually control, you are going to immediately be about 5Xing your performance across the board because you just filtered out the 80% that occupies most people's time, and now you're putting all your energy into the 20% of things that you actually have control over. So it's an immediate 5X return on the performance. However, it actually gets a lot better than that because it's actually a far greater increase when you consider the final variable, which is that energy is a finite resource. So you're not just getting a flat 5x rate because, think about this, if 100% of things occur in a day, only 80 of, uh, and 20% of them are the ones that you can actually control and change and influence. 80% is just stuff that you can't control. The majority of the people have 80% of their day occupied by things that they can't control. So that person moves down that timeline, and as they're moving on that timeline, their energy is also going downward. Their energy is decreasing over time. I need to get a whiteboard. Let's just try that right on. The, we're going to do this. What's this live on air? Let's see if I can bust out a free whiteboard uh, online. All right. Free whiteboard online tool. Free whiteboard. Let's see here. It, it, there we go. Oh, this is perfect. Okay. So people's time. This is wonderful. I like this investment. Whiteboard.com or what is it? Tutorialpoint.com. You guys rock. All right. So this here is uh we're gonna call this a equals energy i'm just gonna abbreviate that you'll remember equals energy right so this is a and a is gonna go down over time as your guys are doing your task so your task is a, this is supposed to be a straight line i'm doing it with a mouse i apologize so b is all this stuff that you do that, that's my b apparently Boom. B. All right. So that's B. So a normal person is going and wasting 80% of their time. Boom. 80% of their time is being invested in stuff that doesn't matter and their energy is dropping. So by the time they reach that 20% that matters, they're operating at maybe 20% efficiency. So they're now here as opposed to you 
if you come in and you how do i just delete is there a mass delete button to like wipe this thing for free do you want to clear this yes so if you can go up and say okay i'm only going to occupy myself with the 20 percent here this now becomes your 100 percent, and you, all of your energy goes into this this is now a hundred percent of your effort and so what was a um what was just a 5x return is now uh, a much is now much more because you're comparing yourself against people who are not just um going side by side but they have a diminishing energy return their energy is dropping off and you're coming in at full force so you're talking about a return that literally gets you to the point of 900 to a thousand x what the other people are doing and it's because by the end of the day they might only uh, of their eight hour work day for example 80 percent of that goes into things that don't matter only 20 percent of that time goes into things that don't and that 20 percent only gets about maybe 10 minutes of concentrated effort because they're drained by the wasted time they just did for eight hours imagine if at work you were only able to work on your most important task at the last 30 minutes of the day how well do you think you would do if your most important work had to happen at the end of the day, every day, for and you only got 30 minutes to do it. It would be terrible. And yet, that's what the majority of the population is doing. It, it's crazy. Absolutely insane. And so that is uh, the energy that you want, you can control, putting your energy into the things you do. So when you combine these three skills together, and if you could update that, I don't know. I don't think we have another one. Perfect. Um. So those are the three skills. So time investment strategy, taking that money, planting it into things that will thrive and grow versus things that rot, depreciate, and decay. The second is the single tasking, mastering that skill set. And it's going to take time. It could take a lifetime. Work on it. It's a worthy investment. It's a great place to put your tickets into. And finally, put your energy into the things that you can control and you're going to reap massive results. This is the reason why Elon Musk is able to do in a day what you might not do in your lifetime. That is because he is using these techniques to get that done, and he's incredibly gifted at it. He's, in, he's naturally talented, like most billionaires are, at single tasking. He's great at time investments, and he puts his energy into the things that he can control and he outsources the things that he can't. He, it's not like he just pretends those things don't exist. He just goes and has someone else do it for him. And so that is the three skills here. If you work on these, literally transform your life. It is far more valuable than any degree you're going to get. These things alone will completely transform your life for the better. So that is Time Manipulation Spells by Seneca. Uh, again, people read the books J please do not take this sh this brief lecture here as a substitute for reading seneca you gotta actually read seneca this this guy will change your life as well as a lot of other authors they're available in the wizard library if you need more info on that let us know but please I, and it doesn't have to you don't have to buy the wizard library go on to i'd hate to say go on to amazon but alas amazon is a place you can get it you can get it on Amazon. Go to your local bookstore. Go to a Barnes. 
I don't even want to recommend Barnes & Noble. Go to a local bookstore. You know what to do. Go inside and pick it up. It might not be there. If it's not, there are stores called Amazon. You can go. You can buy it from me, too. I would love I would love the money, and it will be, hey, if you buy it from me, at least your money is going into this production, more philosophy. So if you like the show, it's a great way to support. So, But, but please do not not take this lecture and be like i don't need to read seneca anymore because that's not what this is this is a if nothing else think of it like an ad to go read seneca (laughs) that's what it is i'm trying to persuade you to do it yes oh hold on let's see here all right opb's is on the mic i have a question for the single task yes the second step you said work on ad copy for three hours Mm mm-hmm what if at some point you run out of things to do for the ad copy? Are you just supposed to like dig deeper? And well, so that's actually part going? of, so with ad copy, you're never going to run out because it's something that you practice through repetition. So ad copy would be like um, writing something, um, writing something, testing something, putting it out, track the data, do it again. So you're, you're going through this process. That being said, what you find is that's actually one of the treasures that you discover when you start applying single tasking. When you start applying this principle, you're going to find out you actually don't have that much work to do. The average person, self-admittedly, wastes 60% of their workday doing literally nothing related to their job. 60%. Of that, the average person can only put 10 minutes of focused effort into any one thing. So when you take those two factors into consideration, the average person is putting in less than 30 minutes of actual work at work. 30 minutes. So if you go out and you single task your job, and that's the average job, that's like a $75,000 a year job. If you go and single task your job, all of a sudden you're like, wait, it's, it's 12 p.m. because you're not going to do it perfectly. What do I do with the rest of my day? Uh-oh, now you have a problem. But you don't have a problem because what did we learn? Time investment. Well, how can I'm hired by this company to produce them value? What could I invest this time into that's going to bring them more value? If you come to your boss with that and something that says, hey, I learned, I'm interested in learning video production because I think it'll be beneficial for content for the company. Guess who's going to get promoted? Guess who isn't going to get laid off? The person who's coming in and saying, I have ways to make you more money or to save you money, and I'm willing to learn it on the house. You don't even have to increase my pay. That's the person people want to hire. So you move up the world. And so that's uh, one of the fruits that you'll find out is when you single task, you're not actually doing much work at all. So Mrs. Athena Zowell says, this hack is really important when you have chronic illness. I always mm-hmm. have to balance how much energy slash pain-free time into getting as much done as possible. And yes. And help with the things that I can't do. And it's very insightful to that because Seneca comes from a place of suffering. He was chronically ill. He was um, you know, tortured. He was sick and exiled. He had a lot of limitations placed on him. So... That's part of the reason he probably worked on these time manipulation spells is because he had to by by sheer necessity. He learned how to do this because he's a Stoic. Stoics don't go and say, woe is me. 
you know, I can't, I can't solve this problem. I, oh, I'm so bad. They say, okay, this is my lot in life. God has decided that I will suffer from chronic illness. Okay, well, what do I do with the time that remains? And, and so what came about is on the shortness of life. And again, please read the books. Just, just go read them, people. <laughs> Hold on. Here we go. Athena's owl finally offered insight into his gibberish comments. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't think my comments are working. The gibberish comment was my response to catching up on the first 30 hours on the first part of the stream at two times speed after waking up too early for fast wizard. Oh, nice. Then he must so have. Oh, up. wow. So he's getting like a pro. So he's getting a, like a deprogramming experience this is like this would be like anti mk ultra program where he's just like all of society is unraveling before my eyes uh the fox is telling me everything i see it all there's a solution <gasps> boom and then he pops into the reality and he's like oh my gosh time manipulation spells all at 5 a.m. <sighs> what a way to start your morning at 5 a.m Woo! that is the breakfast of champions there my friend i hate that expression i can't believe i just said that um, I guess this is the breakfast of champions. Isn't that the, the slogan amongst alcoholics? Yes. I don't understand. Uh, and uh, I, my apologies if, if anyone has anyone who suffers from this, but I do not understand how you could become an alcoholic. I, I'm sorry. I'm sitting here sipping scotch at, in the morning. Uh, well, it's not, it's the afternoon at two, 2 PM. And my God, it is, it is truly awful. Like I get drinking and having a good time every once in a while that I, at social events, I get it, but man, I cannot imagine waking up in the morning and be like, you know what I need? Tequila sunrise with my breakfast. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. It's just, oh, it, it is really rough. It's not, it's not a fun experience at all. It's strange how the time kind of changes it too. Cause like if I was sitting down having a nice steak and had a scotch with there, that's this would be a totally different experience in the evening. Yeah, at dinner versus waking up to morning breakfast and eggs and bacon and a shot of scotch. I, I'm sorry, it's just not good. And what's weird is there's certain times where it is also okay too. When you think about it, like mimosas, Bloody Marys. That's true. I think that's probably what it, it's significantly watered down. That's probably the element of it that's strange. Because I could also see like, oh, it's mimosa Sundays. We're having mimosas. We're having brekkie. I, okay, I could see that. Like a special breakfast Sunday celebration. You know, it's uh, after church. We we had a wedding. Mimosas, that kind of thing. No, no, not many people have scotch. There is a breakfast shot though called breakfast. Yes. Um, it tastes like syrup and pancakes. It's basically like butternut, uh, butterscotch schnapps, whiskey, and something else that makes it a, it's called a breakfast shot. And then there's a gross one that uh, is breakfast with eggs, and someone, they literally just crack a raw egg into it, too. <laughs> it's pretty nasty. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yikes. That's a lot. That's a lot. Oh, PVs did something similar like that today. For some reason, she's just like, you know what I'm going to do? Not sleep. And then she didn't. Oh, hold on. Hold on. There you go. So I've been having this itch to, like, start swimming again because I love swimming. And I, I'm i not a runner. I've just accepted that. I'm not a runner. Never will be. Never have been. So we stayed up until, like, 3 a.m. playing video games. 
and I had swimming this morning at 7 o'clock, so I didn't sleep much, but I feel good because it's, it's exciting to get back in the pool. Yeah. Um, you could have also just, you know, gone swimming at a reasonable hour instead. It was the only available slot. Well, maybe there's a reason why it was the only available slot. <laughs> What's up? Oh, Athena's Owl. Athena's Owl said, I made today a special breakfast to share in the celebrations, but a teeny tiny stock. Fairy-sized breakfast. Very stock. good. Very good. Fairy-sized. Woo! I like a fairy-sized is a great, a great measure. That might be acceptable. Acceptable. Well, I mean, think about it. A scotch egg, right? Don't they put a little That's, scotch in no, it? No, that doesn't have scotch. Oh, I thought they had a little scotch in the batter. No. Oh. It's, I think it's from Scottish. Oh, okay, okay. Not huh. Whiskey. What was the one we went to a gourmet place? It was like a they it was a scotch infused syrup that they put over a scotched egg. Maybe that was what they were playing on is scotch and scotch. I but it was no quite idea. delicious. I don't remember this. Yes, scotch infused syrups. That's a good breakfast way. Nope. So, we've completed Whoa. our time manipulation spells and now we're going to be looking into archetypal analysis of the Tower of Babel. This is a Bible's story. We're going to be doing that analysis here in a bit. Do we need to take a break? Are we good in the chat? Are we having a good time? Everyone happy? Yeah, I think we're good. Do you need a break? Um, I just need some water. No, I am okay. Oh, if Josh and Gal is here. I haven't drank it, and I don't know Josh if I will. I did buy bangs for you, though. I did... Uh, I did get them. I will drink them at some point in the future because for some reason, Josh was very insistent on me getting a bang energy drink. So, <laughs> so I did. I went and bought a four pack for you and uh, I might drink them at some point in the future. Not really sure uh, if I'll do it today, though, because, uh, yeah, what's up? So Athena's owl said, as it hit my tongue, my belly yelled at me. Don't you be putting this in me before your first carb of the day. Right? That's the, <laughs> that's the same feeling I'm what getting here. It's just here? like it burns. Your, you're like, oh, gosh. Wow. Why? Why, your body's like, <laughs> why are you so much better in the this. evening? I don't get it. They're like, no, no, no. We get to sleep off that pain when you do it in the evening. <laughs> we don't get to sleep this one off. I like it. All right, well, let's get into the Tower of Babel. It is so hot here. This is crazy. No, nah, I think we're good because it'll just be loud on the mic. Maybe. I th we'll just keep pushing through. Okay. All right, so we got the Tower of Babel here. So this is an interesting story. So basically... We're going in, we're, we're opening up our Bible. This is the entire story. You've probably heard the reference to the Tower of Babel many times, and this is it. There's, there's no extra slides after this. That's the last slide. The whole story is contained in front of you right now. And what I think you'll find is very incredible is how much wisdom is really embedded into biblical narrative that. I think that you could make a strong case for is is borderline supernatural, if not um, the testament to the the greatest authors of all time, if nothing else. And that's kind of what we want to go into with this story, because it is filled with some of the most crazy concepts. 
and we just kind of brush over this. You know, there was the Tower of Babel. The people came together. They built a tower to try to get to God. God messed up their languages. And voila, bang, bang, boom, that fell off. And uh, they, they lost their ability to communicate in a one language. They got many language, and they scattered across the nations um, based on their languages changing and inhabited the earth. So that's the, the general crux of the story. But there's actually a lot going on below the surface here. So that's what we're going to take a look at here. I currently have an OPVs crawling under my feet trying to plug in a fan. So if I'm making strange behaviors and acting uh, oddly, that that's why. I'll just take a moment here to sip some scotch. Maybe I'll put some button eyes in. <laughs> All right, so the Tower of Babel. We're going to read through the story from start to finish, and then we'll do like what we did with the fox. So the Tower of Babel. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a uh, plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So that's the story of Babel, the, the entire thing in one segment here, OPVs is attempting to get the fan on. Um, I'm sorry about this, guys. Just a technical thing. Uh, I just want to verify this isn't coming over the mic, so I'm going to go silent here for a second. Okay, good. We're not seeing it on the mic. We're good. All right, cool. Sweet. Good angle. Yes, thank you. All right, so that's the story. And so very short story, and contained within that is a ton of information. So let's start with, with the first line here. I've, I've numbered these as lines. You know, if you're a Bible nerd and you're like, you removed the numbering location and blah, 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 blah. Sorry, nerd. I'm not a theologian. I'm a wizard. Okay. I just did it this way. <laughs> it's just, it's just how it is. Um, you know, sorry. But now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So, this is really odd because if you're you're taught right out the gate in today's paracosm that this is an outright false, right? Today's culture tells you, of course, there isn't a universal language. Cultures all developed. Their language is uniquely. There's no mother language that exists. That's not real. And that's like the instinctual thought that you have when you first read this if you're raised in a Western culture, um, which might make you start to be skeptical of Western culture when that, that's your first immediate thought, right? But that's only true if you start, if you completely ignore linguistic anthropologists and the countless pieces of evidence that we've discovered as recently as 2013. 
That's right. Some writing was discovered in an archaeological dig that shows that going back 13,000 years revealed that the world did in fact appear to have what was they are calling a mother language that seems to transition between everyone speaking this mother language there's an event everything goes dark and then all these languages appear much like you see with the uh, historical timeline records where they say the fossil records seem to be nothing 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 then boom explosions of life and material the same thing appears to happen with language which is exactly what the tower of babel story would predict it's very interesting very very bizarre indeed that the emergence of language seems to be predicting that what the tower of babel is saying here is true now before you go jumping to conclusions about what this could mean um you you got to realize that well, Tyler, you know, the, the, the common things that come up, because this is cognitive dissonance. You've been culturally programmed to think uh, that science is uh, not a religion. It is that they use peer reviewed science. Their peer reviewed science is inaccurate. It's not reproducible 52 percent of the time. That means science is less reliable than a coin flip. You've been taught to believe that what they tell you is true. Yet most of a, a bunch of evidence supports the case that there was a mother language it did go out and then all of a sudden there was an explosion of all these different languages which is what you would expect from the story you might be telling yourself well tyler this is a symbolic storytelling device obviously this isn't reality i just want you to keep in mind that the timeline of biblical history has essentially been a non-ending constant and i mean literally constant as in every year Scientists saying this in the Bible proves the Bible is wrong. I have the science that says it's wrong. And then 15 to 20 years later goes by and they find out that they were wrong and the Bible was right. So before you go jumping to conclusions, I would highly recommend just realize that's been the case for all ever since this thing's been written down, people. It, it's been nonstop. Skeptics claim, well, the Bible says that the world, the oceans were filled from the oceans below. And everyone knows that the real reason the oceans were filled was because a meteor hit and melted to fill the oceans. Fast forward to 2012. It was uh, discovered that the majority of the ocean's water came from within the earth, not from outside. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. That's another thing. Wait, but that book was written when? Uh-huh. It just keeps happening. So keep that in mind as you move forward with the story to open your minds to the ideas that this could be real. And you don't have to accept it as reality for these lessons to uh, impact you because God can work in your heart in many ways. But I would definitely consider that. So let's move on to uh, number two here, which is they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So they set to building this great tower and they want to reach up to the heavens, kind of like a city today. And it's founded on great principles. They set a vision. They had a reason. And then they mess up. They did it for themselves, 
not to honor something higher than themselves like God, the truth, the logos. They gave them, God gave them the ability to build, grow, and create, and they used that, but they honored themselves for build, growing, and creating, not the truth, not God, not the one that blessed them with the ability to build this thing. If you could update that for me. So, you wonder if they if they built this tower to honor and respect God as the highest ideal, would the tower still exist? Would God have let it stand? And it's odd, too, because they say, or else we will be scattered across the earth. And I wonder why that was perceived as negative. So this is a lot of questions that come up from this thing, and it's not really answered. So, like, why were the people worried about being scattered across the earth? Uh, what would have happened if they had honored God? Perhaps... By decentralizing their power, they wouldn't be as strong. Maybe that's why they're afraid to be scattered across the earth. So it's a clever plan, really. It shows how powerful just the breath of God alone has on us. We could literally set a vision and build a monument so great and a city so wonderful that the whole world would flock to see it and stay. Now, again, that skepticalness comes in. You say, Ty, that's absurd. But pull yourself back pull yourself back and ask yourself, is that not true? Do we not actively have that today? We already know this is real. Go look at Disneyland. We have people who build monuments of glory and wonder and people all around the globe flock to go see that monument now. So they build this testament to their own glory to keep people nearby and focused on the energy. Think about it. If someone set up a Disneyland in the middle of Kentucky, don't you think a lot of people from Kentucky are going to start moving closer to that place because it's beautiful, it's awesome, it's fun, it's entertaining? That's Imagine that at the biggest of scales. And so that's kind of what we're seeing here in this process. And I think that might be the reason why they're concerned with scattering. That's, that might be the strategy that they've come up with is let's create a centralized place to focus our energy that God's given us. Sorry, that's uh, Schopenhauer that popped up on the screen. My apologies. Um, we'll be getting to him in just a bit. So they uh, built this testament, but the big flaw, the one fatal flaw in this plan is that they choose to honor themselves over God. And so that's where we move on to step three. So, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. And this is where things get really, really, really weird. <laughs> so first off, the Lord comes down. So God just comes down from heaven and visits cities, apparently. That's just a thing he does. I didn't know that this is a regular thing. God's just like, you know, I'm going to go take a break from heaven, guys. I'm going to go check out this city they're working on. And he does, apparently. That's what the Bible's telling us here. I didn't know that until I read the story. I thought that was like a one-off thing. Jesus came. He, he, he was on the earth. He died. And then he came back. And, he, and he's coming back to kill all these peas. That's what I thought the whole story was, right? Turns out God was just chilling, coming in. He pops in sometimes. It's like, oh, yeah, nice city you got here. And and you, it makes you wonder. It's like, I, I don't know why this doesn't get an intense reaction. When you read the story in church, you, you go up, and it's just kind of, you know, God, and then the Lord came down and checked out the city. It's like, what? 
So he just, he just came down for a casual stroll through the city of Babel. How often has God come down to earth? Does he do this often? What form does he take? Is he a man? Is he a spirit, an invisible force? It's kind of bizarre, right? And it's not answered at all. And the story doesn't stop getting strange there. It actually goes on to get way stranger because God also seems to be startled or caught off guard by how great the city is already. Humans coming together and working on a single clear vision is so powerful that it appears to have caught even God off guard. He's like, whoa, whoa, what, what are you guys, look what they've done, look what they've done right now with, with just this. Um, nothing is impossible for them. That's pretty scary, right? God himself is a bit like, whoa, okay, yeah, exactly. And, well, and that's kind of the bizarre concept to hold. God is someone who can come down to earth. He can be caught off guard by the creation of humans and in fact be slightly alarmed by it as well. And, and, and it seems like this story is very, very interesting to me uh, because it actually seems to line up with a theory that I posited a while ago. And turns out there's a political philosopher who has a term for this. We talked about this with um, with Mr. Athenazel, actually. And uh, the, the, the political philosopher's name is Vox Day, and he came up with the term for this called omnidertes. And so the concept that I had come up with for this and that is now that was termed by Vox Day omnidertes, it came about by playing a video game called Skyrim. I know that sounds silly, but, but that is where, where, where this thought came to me. And more or less, the, the concept would be that imagine the world is a pro is a video game right the world is skyrim if you will and god is the programmer so if you imagine skyrim this big world game with caves and creatures and wolves and 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 very intricate detail and these things run on their own when you're not even there so if you're not on the map you know giants will be fighting with elephants over in the hills, even though your character's not there to see it, that kind of thing. Um, my thought is, what if that's what God does? What if God is actually the programmer inside of Skyrim? And so he can come in, and he's not just all-knowing, but instead is omnidertent. And what that would mean is he doesn't just know everything, that's limiting of him because if you are all knowing you're limited in your ability to choose to not know something and God is all powerful. So it would make sense that he would have something greater than all knowing, which would be this concept of omnidirectance, which is he can choose to know anything at any time, just like a programmer can go into any part of Skyrim, stop it immediately. He can go and stop the wolves as they're chasing a deer and stop them in mid track circle around inspect every detail he can rewind time to when the wolves were just about to start their hunt he can go and re change the variables swap out the wolves put in three wolves instead of one wolf he can take out the wolves replace them with the tiger whatever he wants and then replay the entire thing and see how that sequence plays out he could then watch how that sequence plays out say i don't really like that ending stop it rewind and do the whole thing again and he can also choose to allow the wolves to do their own thing without his intervention at all 
and not see it. And it seems that he has this capacity to know and to choose to not know as well. And so that's kind of the concept here. And it seems like the story is kind of indicating that that's how God operates. He is this being that can just choose to come into his game, check out the world's variables and be like, whoa, this is not good. No, no, no. We're making a, we're doing a hot fix on this. We're going to patch this. People having all this language connection, not good. And so he fixes that right on the spot. He does a hot fix, just like a programmer could do. Let's see. So OPB has uh, some insight for us. Let's get her uh, on the, the mic. You're you're good to go. Oh, so I think my voice is doubling because your mic was on. My apologies. Oh, oh no worries. Um, so Sherlock Hour is back. Woo! She welcome back. She got to pet a ferret. Someone Whoa. was able to sneak a ferret into Six Flags. Someone snuck a ferret into Six Flags, and Sherlock Owl has pet it. That's crazy. Yes. You know, I can. you can never tell the difference between a person with a pet ferret and not having a pet ferret. Because if you have a pet ferret, they just hide all the time. No, not always. Oh, they're, they're very cowardly creatures. They're very playful. So I always um, just tell people I have a pet ferret. Uh, ah, he's very shy. Yes, and then we actually do have a pet ferret, and Tyler doesn't even know. Exactly. Um, and then Athena's owl says, oh, that explains all the bugs for life. There's a bunch of bugs, all the glitches in the matrix. Oh, yes, exactly. Well, that that would explain the glitch. Well, that's what I find so funny about these uh, quote-unquote atheists who are like, I've come up with a conclusion that shows uh, that shows that the universe is uh, a simulation. It's a program. It's like, it, you morons. Yes, Christians have been telling you this for like literally forever. <laughs> you dummies. No, 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 but it's not God. It's a programmer. So what would you call a programmer who programmed life, the morality of society, the universal laws that we have, ethics, uh, the laws of physics, creator of the universe? What, what would you call that programmer? The, the simulation programmer. No, you wouldn't. You call it God and you know it. <laughs> it's just so it's so ridiculous. So he's fully able to control this situation and he can choose to know things and to not know things at his own discretion and that seems to be what's being played out here with the nature of god in the story the tower of babel now god looks around and what i find really really fascinating is that as alex put it he seems to be a little bit impressed i mean what do we even make of that man made something that literally impressed god and then he utters this incredibly inspiring warning, which is nothing, which is this, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Nothing? Could they have actually reached heaven? Like, is that something they could have done? What if they had put their efforts towards honoring God? What if they all could have lived, created a society where everyone literally became like Christ? Would we have needed Christ if we created a society that made everyone capable of living a Christ life? Who knows? And, and But is that possible? Could we have ascended to heaven by our own effort? And all of these questions are raised, and they're not answered. It's, it's a very, very interesting thing. Um fascinating to think about would that have been a bad thing would it be bad if they had created a tower to honor god and they did become these christ-like figures and rise to heaven 
Um, clearly, God thinks that it's dangerous in the way that they're doing it because they're honoring themselves, and he puts a stop to it right away. And then yet again, the story goes and becomes even more bizarre. So he goes and he says, come, let us go down and confuse their language. So suddenly we're no longer God chilling in Babel anymore. We are somewhere else. And God's now talking with a group of some something. We don't know who's he, who's he chatting with. He's all of a sudden he's not in Babel anymore. Now he's gone and he's somewhere else. And he's talking to a group of people who apparently can confuse people's languages. Uh, perhaps these are angels. That seems like that's what's being implied here. Um, and that God's giving them the ability to confuse their language. But it's very strange because there's actually a lot of speculation about this exact story. Um, and it's tied in with the mythology of Greek gods. We actually learned about this in one of our History's Mysteries we did. Uh, some of people think that the Greek gods may have been a mix of angels and demons that were sent to take in charge of various nations based on this linguistic split that happens right here in the Tower of Babel. And that a lot of these various religions and cultures that arose was from honoring the angels and demons that took over because of this linguistic split. Now, that is all speculation, and it's an interesting hypothesis to think about if you find yourself with some free time. It certainly beats thinking about anything that the school system's teaching you or whatnot, but it's not, we don't know if that's true. It's, it's a fun hypothetical to consider. But on the psychological side, what I find really profound as well is it seems to indicate that if humans set a vision and work together, we're capable of doing things so incredible that it could literally impress God and that the main thing holding us back from this is communication. And what's so insanely insightful about this is that it's totally true. The number one thing that hinders progress in any business or country and families down to the individual is found in communication. And this has been a study of my life for a long time. Um, for example, how often is, I think you may have gone two slides instead of one. Uh, there you go. If you go back one more, there you go. <clears throat> okay, I think it is. There. All right, so uh, how often has this occurred for you? For example, you don't understand what your boss was saying because it wasn't properly communicated and they don't, the team doesn't have the vision. So you run into these people who use language persuasively to manipulate the truth and then, uh, that's being used on people who are already poor communicators in general, and the job doesn't get done. Th that's the, the textbook scenario you run into in pretty much every corporation is someone doesn't communicate well, and it causes all of these problems uh, to arise. If you took any company, literally any company, and could improve a single factor and just one factor to produce the greatest results for that company, can you think of a concept that would be more valuable than improving communications? It's hard, right? It, it's not easy. You might think of a few contenders, but when you start thinking about how pers pervasive this matrix of communication is on the micro level and the macro level, I think you'll start to see it's not even close. Think about how, for example, communications involves sales. It involves marketing. It involves the emails that you send to each other. It involves the vision your boss sets for the company, your goals, your raise, your teamwork, 
all of these things hinge upon communication. And 90% of the problems that we run into in life are because of a communication issue and could be improved with better communication. It's one of the reasons I got into the job that I do and why I've been so passionate about this topic for so long. These stories from thousands of years ago are predicting problems we see today and are positing solutions that could literally transform our entire economy. It's a pursuit that I've dedicated the majority of my life to, and it's basically how to communicate complicated ideas in a simple, easy to understand and persuasive way. So a lot of my job, the reason that I have been rewarded by the market has been what I call is the mediator between the smarts and the management. So you've got your smarts, those are the smart people, and smart people for whatever reason tend to be really lousy at communication. And then you have your managers who tend to not be very smart, but they're very good communicators. And so what happens is they are in a constant battle with the smarts because they don't can't understand what the smarts are saying and don't trust them. And the smarts are scared of their boss because they're good at communicating and they just want to get the job done. And so I come in in the middle and I just simply say, all right, smarts, what, what are we doing and what's the realistic Really, reality of what's going on here. And then I simplify that down for a manager, explain it to them, and they go, oh, okay, now I know why it takes two weeks instead of two days. And that's the majority of how I'm helping facilitate things from a workplace environment. And then, of course, that translates out into the business world, which is ad copy, is how do I take an idea, a concept, a philosophy, and make it simple enough so that the average person can read it, understand it, and then act on that information. And all of those ideas are about communication. So God has given us in this story a very cool arrow to aim at. If you're a company and you want to make a lot of money, learn how to communicate better. That I, I can't think of a better way to improve, uh, to make a company go from a million to a billion dollar company than just improving your communications. Literally that. And that's what this Bible story is telling us here is look how powerful this could be. You literally could do anything, anything. He says, nothing is impossible. It's insane. It's insanity. Absolutely insanity. So uh, we'll move on here to the fourth chapter here. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So Babel, Babel, the word that we get Babel from, to be like a babbling idiot, that's coming from the word Babel there. And th this is an interesting little tidbit here, because to babble in a conversation, it's, it's this tied into a name. We actually get to this weird concept that comes up about the true source of language. We see this from Plato in his book, The Cratulus, um, or, or Cratulus, I should say. That's the name of the guy. It's not the Cratulus. <laughs> Though, if you think about the linguistic, that's kind of interesting. Anyway, um, Cratulus is a guy who is having a debate with Socrates and another person, and they're talking about whether or not um, names and words have deep meaning because of them. Like, what is the source of those words? Or are they just arbitrarily assigned and have no true deep meaning? And to say the names are 
say, it, what this is kind of implying is that God is giving this thing a name. It's getting inherent meaning because of the historical cost of what happened in Babel. So because Babel fell, it was such a historical landmark that it literally became encoded into the language itself in the form of this word Babel, which is quite interesting to think about. You can almost see how, um, like we've done with 9-11, for example. Now, when you say the word 9-11, that was a cultural trauma that essentially became a symbol or a word that when you say that, boom, it evokes history and memories. We know what that means in people's heads. And so that's kind of what we're seeing happen here. Now, while this might seem interesting on the surface, you also need to know that there is a theory behind all of this in theological literature. And that's tying into something known as the original tongue of Adam. And it was believed by some theologians and scholars that the ability to name things comes from a true source, something like a platonic form of names. So this idea was set by the original language of Adam and his ability to name things in the garden. So God comes and says, you know, Adam named these things and he goes and he names the things. And there is a sect of occultists who actually theorize that they could learn this hidden language and that they could name things into existence as well. And that's how occultist ritualists actually started developing. But what's even b more bizarre is that when they do these rituals, they are tapping into a paracosm, which means they're actually tapping into the ability to build, grow, and create things by naming them that we all do. <laughs> and the big problem is that because they're missing, it's an innate gift given to them by God. And instead, they're projecting it out into this world. They're, they're denying the breath of God that allows them to do it. And instead, they're holding something else to a higher ideal. In this case, their own will. And so that's what makes this occult practice evil. And this is a, a, a big point because a lot of Christians are really harsh on pagans and Wiccan people and Satanist even. And I don't think they realize how close those people are to being Christian. They just don't know the philosophy or what's 90% of the time they love sin. And if you're a Christian and you don't think that people love sin, you're a liar and you're not a Christian because there's nothing that's more clear in the Bible than the fact that all humans, all humans love sin. And put that into context with Jesus here. Jesus told us that when we tap into our connection to God, we can look at a mountain and we can tell it to move and it will be moved. How is that different than when the occultist says, I'm going to uh, put a curse on someone and they put their energy and effort into causing that to happen, and, and, and then it does. Well, the difference is the Wiccan isn't honoring God. They're honoring their own will. Jesus is telling us to recognize this power comes to us from God, and now enact your will. Nothing is impossible. It's a very, very similar um, and it sounds absurd. Again, this is another one of those examples when you say that. And it's like, so you think you could go look at a mountain and tell it to move and it'll move. And then you're, you've been programmed by mind control to think that that's ridiculous. But this is painfully, obviously true. 
think about this. Okay, so if you set your vision on moving a mountain and you put your being into moving a mountain, you can. And the mountain will be moved. Because think about it. Maybe you, you've decided my purpose in life is to move this mountain. And I am made in the image of God. Nothing is going to stop me. I will find a way by using truth to make this happen. So maybe you go and you scour the mountain and you find some deadly beetles or a invasive species. And then you go and tell the city about how this mountain's a threat because it's a breeding ground for these deadly diseases. We got to have this moved. That's one way to use logos to move a mountain. Or perhaps you set a vision in your mind for a pathway through that mountain. And think of how much trade, think about how much commerce could be occurred if we simply moved the top of that mountain. Or perhaps we can go and think of all the numbers of ways that you could go about attacking the moving of the mountain. Because you set a vision for yourself, you trust that you can do this because you're made in the image of God, and then you set out to accomplish that goal. Now, when you hear it said outright, you think of this nonsense uh, fairy level thought of like the secret, I'm going to manifest the mountain moving. No, you don't manifest the mountain moving. You build, grow, and create things to make the mountain move. It's that simple. <laughs> it's like, come on, people. And so... We know that this is inherent in us and we have this power. And um, one of these things that we have is this ability to name things and this, this linguistic power. And it's important to note this because you are incredibly powerful. A lot of time, all of society is trying to make you feel like you're weak, like you're helpless, like you can't do anything, like you can't, you know, it's all been done before. And realize that within your heart, is the ability to do something so impressive that God himself will be impressed. And note more, not only is God impressed, but the demons are absolutely terrified of it. Absolutely terrified. So much so that their only course of action is to try and convince you that you aren't a lion and that you're actually just a sheep. Don't let them, don't let them trick you. And that's it. That's the Tower of Babel. Woo! Tower of Babel. Knock that one out of the course. I love little Alice. Choo -choo -choo -choo. So wonderful. So wonderful. So how are we doing? How are, well, let's, let's get some thoughts. Let's see if all the atheists have arrived to tell us that we're evil people and should die. How are we doing? No? Better than atheists. Oh, great. Much better. We got Sherlock Owl and Woo! Ducky Owl in chat. Ducky Owl and the Sherlock Owl. What up? Thank you guys so much for that letter. It was wonderful. Very Amazing. inspiring. I will protect it with my life. A hundred percent. We have a whole, we have a stockpile bit. of all the letters that we've gotten. And, uh, and, and we, we keep, we guard them. And eventually we're going to just have piles. And then people are going to think we're hoarders like that. Remember the history's mystery. Oh yeah. But we won't be, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Athena's Owl said, naming things is far more powerful than most people realize. Yeah. It's one of the top evil manipulation strategies. A hundred percent. Creating fictional words to try and control people's minds. We talk about it all the time. Yeah. For example, the word racist isn't real. It was invented in the 1950s. Sexist was invented all around the same time by one group of people. And they literally wrote a book and said, we're going to invent these words to manipulate useful idiots. And then they did <laughs> like that's that's literally the linguistic history. But if 
that might be a bit too abstract or it might be too charged with the mind control. So let's bring it into the, the more concrete. Uh, pick up a pencil and snap it. It's not hard. Pick up that pencil and call it Jeffrey and treat it like your pet for a day and then snap it. You feel something after that. It hurts. It doesn't make any sense, but you did. Or your chickens, like we've talked about. It's like you call the chickens chickens. They are not They are not snowball. They're not fluffy. Because if you do, now you're chopping off Fluffy's head, not a chicken's head. <laughs> and it's, it's very... Uh, it's very true. It's scary how powerful these, this, this power that we have is. And it can be used for good. And that, I think that's the big thing, is that almost as an aversion to being associated with the occult, false Christian teachings have arisen that tell people to not do these things, to not enact their godly nature into the world unless it fits within a special little box. They have a little box. This is where it's okay. And that's not what God tells us. He says, no, just you, you go move mountains if you want to. I'm not going to stop you. Go. You're made in my image. Show the world. And that's, I, I we got to do stuff like that. Uh, I, I, we got to bring that back into Christianity. Oh, here we go. Athena Zell says, Australia hasn't got a strain of the beer sniffles like we have always talked about. We have the horrifying Delta variant. Oh, the, the Delta variant. Whoa. Is that like, hmm, can you think of any other diseases that every year a new variant comes out and people kind of get a little sick, but it's not a big deal, and then they just drink some chicken noodle soup and hot tea and get better? But a few old people die, though. There are some old people who do die because they already have cancer and other illnesses. Any of those, Anything come to mind? Yeah. Peoples? Yeah. Let's hear it. Oh, the flu. Oh, right. All right. And wait, hold on. What was that thing that's printed on Lysol containers from like 2015? What's the word that it says on there? It's like effective against what? What was it? Uh, it's like the beer sniffles. Oh, effective against coronavirus oh, from 2015. Yeah, that's weird. Huh. I wonder why that's the case. I wonder if this is all a manipulation scam. Uh, but I mean, surely the guy who's uh, at the head of all of this didn't recently have all of his documents get leaked and show that he's actively been lying about this the whole time just to make money and profited off of making biological weapons, right? No, oh, no, don't die. I mean, because if that would happen, I think that the world would need to react very, very harshly and uh, start reconsidering why a branch of the government and a party of the government who advocates for perversion and being perverted and advocates for racism and Nazism is also trying to establish that there's a terrifying deadly flu when there wasn't right around an election that they were concerned about. Hmm. I wonder what would happen if people looked into that. Be strange what you might find. Hey, uh, what was that uh, thing that they did back in the day? What was that? There was that politics problem going on in 19 or in 1666. You remember that? Yeah, there's a whole weird election. Some guy who represented the people gained power. And mysteriously all of london just went into flames and burnt down it was so stra strange but you know what the other party who represented the elites was able to take control and make everything okay hmm. weird weird historical event but you know who knows 
maybe people should look into those things. I'm not a historian. You should check it out yourself. Read the books. All right, let's get her. Uh, OPB's unmuzzled. Go ahead. Yeah, fun fact is ferrets are completely legal in Montana. Ferrets are completely legal in Montana. Well, yeah, that's very g- good to know. Or very five? You want to get five? I, I don't want a single ferret. I know, me neither. I want five of them. No, I don't I don't <laughs> need parrot, ferrets. Okay. Are, what, what am I going to do with a ferret? Well, there's cold winters here. You use it as a scarf. Okay. Yeah, I think I think we're good on the ferrets. I think that we have a, a enough ferrets, which is none. By the way, uh, just a, a good old sipperoo. It's always good to celebrate our branding of uh, to our enemies. Danny, Danny's terrible, terrible piece of crap mug for bad merchandise. Danny the junk drawer. All right, so that's the Tower of Babel. That's a good little discussion there. Um, now we're going to move on into a little bit more practical philosophy with uh, Arthur Arthur <laughs> Arthur Schopenhauer. My apologies. I almost called him. <laughs> I said Arthur, and I thought like King Arthur in my head, and then I my brain went to Arthur Doyle, and I'm like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> Oh, weird. Huh. You know, I think it would be very interesting if someone had put together a series, I think it was like Histories, Mysteries or something like that, that talked about the parallels between 1666 and the uh, 2020. Um, You know, those crazy astrologers might be ignored, but there's a few other things you might find there. If you're uh, willing to go past YouTube's search algorithm, that is. So why don't we take a look at Arthur Schopenhauer. Practical philosophy. So Arthur Schopenhauer is who I lovingly call Mopey Shopey. So Mopey Shopey is the philosopher who uh, I think he went too far. You might need to go back. Maybe. Oh, no, go back. Go back. Oh, you're, in, you're in Coraline world now. Okay, I guess it's gone. All right, we're going to go ahead and do uh, Arthur. We're going to do Mopey. Sh- yeah, we're going to do Mopey Shopey's bio from memory here. So Mopey Shopey is a philosopher who is best known for his d- disturbingly dark, pessimistic view of the world. Um, he comes to this realization that the world is and this comes about because of his studies of eastern traditions so you can almost think of mopey shopey here as the western's version of zen buddhism or of the um the concept of tao for example so schopenhauer goes deep into these eastern traditions and comes to a similar conclusion based on their philosophies which as you guys know from the show eastern philosophy is garbage it's just some of the worst philosophy you'll ever find falls apart under five minutes of scrutiny but schopenhauer is sold by this philosophy and he upgrades it from the standard Eastern tradition, which falls apart under scrutiny. He upgrades it with the dialectic of the Western tradition and makes it very robust. It's a very persuasive argument. It's still wrong, and it, but it's only wrong in the sense that it's missing perspective. It's part of the pro, part of the equation, not the whole of the equation. And so, what he views the world as is this nothingness so so there there is nothing that is alive right so there's there's the rocks there is non-conscious life 
there's plants, there's trees, there's um, bears. They're not thinking about the, the meaning of life, for example. They're not thinking about what's going on in the stars. They're, they're simply existing. And then there is this tumorous outgrowth called conscious being, which is us. And this, of course, not my opinion, but Mopey Shopey's opinion. And he's saying that whatever this will to live is, because there's you can observe this will to live. You're looking at animals who exist to eat and reproduce, to eat and be happy and be merry for tomorrow we may die, to quote the Bible. And humans have this same will to live in us, but we have this bizarre occurrence where whatever that will to live is, is also interested for some reason seeing the world from the inside out so it, it grows into our head as this consciousness and then we start viewing the world and we are the puppets of the will to live and we're being manipulated to go and observe so we're driven to learn something to study something to explore something and the reason we have all these drives is because of this will to live and we are just mindlessly driven to know because the will to live is desperately trying to find purpose and meaning in its existence when there's nothing to be found. And so we are the victims of the will to live. We suffer this life as we mindlessly, hopelessly search for purpose to fulfill this will to live's desires. And then eventually we die. And so it's this very depressing, pessimistic view of life. And so Shopey comes in and he tells us the opposite tells us the the approach to defeating this problem is that we should essentially adopt a very zen like approach to life pursue philosophy read lots of books dedicate ourselves to art and music and to just come into life and fade away by putting as little energy into the will to live as possible and if the whole world did this we would all die off the will to live would end and this sick evil world would come to an end because there's no conscious life so it's an apocalyptic theory he's proposing here now and far be it for me to actually compliment Nietzsche but I, I, I have to here Nietzsche actually looked at Schopenhauer's theory and he posited a uh, optimistic view of his philosophy rather than a negative one and it, it's a good point and so basically Nietzsche's response to Shopey here is look if the will to live we have one approach which you recommended which is to end the will to live what if instead we say no let's work with the will to live let's take the forces of the will to live and use them for our own gain and so then uh nietzsche upgrades his philosophy to what he calls the will to power which is essentially just shopey's here's theory of will to live utilized for our own personal gain in this life so rather than try to not live nietzsche says let's try to live to the fullest that we could possibly be what is the actualized form of living when we embrace this will to live as power and so that's the nietzschean perspective 
So that's Shopey, Mopey Shopey's philosophy in a very, very, very brief nutshell. It's very dark. It's very depressing. Um, but it is important for us to know people who are wrong and to see their perspectives on the world so that we can know thy enemy here. So I want to give you that brief introduction. And also, we're going to take some information from Shopey here that's very powerful and useful for our everyday lives. So this is stuff that despite him being wrong on some things and having this negative pessimistic view of life, um, we're still able to learn from this. And this is an important lesson that you can really learn from sources that aren't in agreement with you. And this is something I've seen a lot happening in today's day and age, and it's happened before in the past. I think it's just happening a lot more now just because there's more access to data and information to the lower stratas of society than ever before because of the internet. But people have always kind of put themselves into little intellectual boxes. So, you know, someone who reads Ayn Rand is going to go and read other uh, capitalist, libertarian literature, and they're probably not going to be reading Noam Chowski, for example. And it's important to read the alternative perspectives or you will fall into an illusion. And you guys have seen my shows. You know how effective using rhetoric and sophistry can be. I can sit there and show you a random person off of YouTube, and in a course of a couple of hours, we can make them seem like the single worst person who's ever lived on the face of the planet, and then the next week, we can come in and show how they're actually the greatest people ever, and that is the power of rhetoric and sophistry. That's me doing my act as a magician there to demonstrate for you guys, look, these are characters. These, this is persuasion. It's very easy for us to get sucked in. So it's extremely important that we're constantly going and saying, hey, I want to read, um, read Nietzsche. Okay, well, also make sure that you're reading Socrates as well. You want to see the conflicting viewpoints. Um, not just reading left-wing politics, but reading right-wing politics as well and vice versa. So it's important to do that if you're um, trying to be a free thinker. So... That's kind of what we're doing here. And so this is something valuable I took from uh, Mopey Shopey here, which is how to start philosophizing. He actually comes up with a very concrete and simple approach that you can use right now today to start using philosophy in your life. And so it breaks into three steps. The first one is courage. So he tells us that a big problem with most people to start philosophizing is that they're afraid to ask a question. It might be because they're afraid of looking stupid. It might be because they're afraid of asking a question that's offensive. They might be afraid of what the answer might be. And so the first step to start philosophizing is to tell yourself, this is an abstract thought experiment. I don't believe or mean any of these things. I'm simply asking a question for fun. It's like an experiment of sorts. I'm completely devoid of this. I'm not emotionally invested. Step two is he says, start with what goes without saying. And this I found very, very useful because a lot of times when people start learning philosophy, they're like, this is great and all, but how do I apply this to my everyday life? That's why practical philosophy, the segment here came about was here's how to apply it to your everyday life. And what he's telling you is you've learned how to use philosophy. You know how to think now. So where do you find things to philosophize about? So he tells us, what are the things that you just say? Well, that goes without saying. That's where you start. What did you say? Well, that goes without saying. Pick that thing. That's your question. 
That is a treasure trove of ideas to explore and to look at. And you'll find tons and tons of examples of this. You know, it goes without saying that killing people for their skin color is wrong. That's a question, and it takes courage to ask that question because, well, we all know that that's correct, right? Well, do you have the courage to ask that question? That's where philosophy starts. Finally, he tells us to remove oneself and to just go through the dialectic. So we look at the data, we look at the observations, we don't go in with any assumptions. We simply ask that question, and then we pick something um, we, we pick that thing that we say goes without saying and then just follow a dialectic process. And so that is how you can start philosophizing today. It's have courage, ask yourself what goes without saying, and then just hacked out the dialectic for why that's true. And you will find lots of wisdom. Now, this is a really cool approach because this is almost like the... Um, you see, and you know, it's funny, Arthur, Arthur Doyle also was the founder of what's called abductive reasoning. Um, up until it existed before, but it didn't have a name. Um, so Arthur Doyle, it's called Sherlock Holmes logic. So there was inductive and deductive reasoning. So deductive reasoning was you go and you find um, it, it's 100% accurate. So if it's true, so syllogistic truths, this is something that philosophy does a lot. So like, Socrates is a mortal. All or ugh, crap, I did it backwards. My apologies. <laughs> all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. If all three premises are true, it's true. That's deductive logic. Inductive is not a hundred percent certain, but that's what we see with scientific studies, for example. So that would be uh, it's essentially like a ninety-nine point nine percent confidence interval, or modern day science, forty-eight percent. So you know. It's a religion, not a science anymore. That being said, if you actually did inductive logic truly, which we don't do anymore, uh, that would be the, the accuracy you're looking for. And so what inductive says is I found 50 pieces of evidence. So when I went and I looked for ducks at the pond, all the ducks were white. And I did that for 15 years. Also, 50 of my friends have done that for 15 years. Everyone who's been there seen a white duck. So inductively, we can conclude if someone says they caught a duck at that pond, it's going to be a white duck. And so that's inductive logic. Now, could that be wrong? Yes. Is it likely to not be wrong? Yes. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's very likely to be true. Um, and so that's inductive. Abductive reasoning is saying, if I can eliminate every other possible variable, and this is Sherlock Holmes logic, and only one remains, that one is correct. And so it's an abductive approach. And so that's to go and you're taking deductive and flipping it. So I don't need to know which answer is true. I just need to know which ones are false. And if you want a beautiful example of this in uh, culture, uh, the Dr. House series, uh, the, he's a doctor who's got a cane and the, the, the methodology he uses to diagnose diseases is very commonly either deductive or abductive approaches. So he'll go in and say, okay, this person has these things. So I just need to, I know it's one of these five. If I can disprove these other four, I know the last one remaining is the disease. And so that's abductive approach. OPB says, or the board game Clue. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I, I don't know how that factors in, but I'm not fam that familiar with the rules of Clue. Yeah, it's a board game. 
All right. I'll pay visit to to explain the board game Clue for us. Because the whole game Clue is you have all these different variables, different people, different rooms, different murder weapons, and you ask questions mm -hmm. to rule things out. So if Got someone it. has the wrench in their room, the murder weapon couldn't have been a wrench. Mm. So you're subtracting all of the variables until you finally get the person, the place, the weapon. Okay. Okay. That makes so. sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That, that's a great example of the abductive reasoning process in, in a nutshell. So um, what Shopee is doing here is doing the same thing for philosophizing. So rather than going and finding new questions like Socrates would do, what is the meaning of life? Uh, Shopee is saying, instead, let's turn inward and ask ourselves, what do I already assume is true? And then going there. So it's kind of this abductive approach to philosophizing. So um, that that's essentially it. That is the concept Shopee teaches us here on how to start philosophizing today. Go in with courage to ask yourself any question. Start with things that you say go without saying. Ask that question. Walk through the dialectic and the logical arguments for it. And observe the observations and data and dialectic that come out. And that's it. That is how you start philosophizing using Mopi Shopee's technique. Now, is this the only technique you should use? Absolutely not. You should also use Socrates' method as well. The Socratic method is fantastic for philosophizing. But if you want to quick start your approach, you're sitting in a car ride. I know Cutie Owl was talking about it. She's like, how can I, and this, I have no idea how this is possible, to be honest with you. Cutie Owl claims she gets bored in car rides. I don't know how, you, I forgot what the feeling and emotion of boredom feels like. I don't know what that even feels like anymore. I can't um, remember a time that I felt boredom in my life because I grew up with the internet. Like, how could you ever be bored? You, you have all of human knowledge in your pocket. <laughs> That's just fascinating to me that you could could ever be bored but i think that was also an element of like motion sickness that was involved as well so that i think was more the reason for her but this concept of being bored is absolutely fascinating to me but this is something that you can do when you're bored you're in school you're bored your teacher's a liar they're not telling you anything of value that's what the school system's all about they're evil manipulative people so you you're listening to these liar you can sit here and start philosophizing in your head right off the bat and there's nothing they can do to stop you from doing this at all so that's that's the power that Shopee is giving us here. What's up, OPs? I also read something recently mm -hmm. on the topic of boredom, saying that boredom is really important for kids <laughs> because that's what helps them form new neurological pathways of problem solving and trying to like try new things and find ways to solve problems of them being bored. Interesting. And it also leads to like experimentation and play and creative thinking like coming up with games to play so that they're not bored did that come from Whereas, a psychology study i i don't know not so that, that i know of i just read a post that it's not true but it kind of <laughs> makes sense because yeah. a lot of the games you play you make up because you're bored yeah, yeah instead definitely. of just constantly be flood being flooded in with all of this all of these video games data these video articles, games yeah everything to kind of distract your thinking for yourself mm -hmm. It's like thinking for you. It's providing entertainment mm. for you rather than you having to come up with it yourself. Maybe we should do a so boredom experiment. Sense. What if we do a week yeah. where we try to feel bored again and see what happens? Well, I know when I was younger and I felt bored, 
I would just entertain myself like drawing or exactly like you're like oh what should I do today? There's never a feeling of boredom. You're just like, what should I do today? Okay, I'll read this book. I'll go collect bugs outside. I will go and drop rocks from my clubhouse and see if the speed of gravity actually matches up with what the book says. Like. You, you, there's an infinite number of things that you could do. I, I don't, I don't understand. But you probably. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. Interesting. So, uh, do we have any comments, thoughts, or feedback on the Shopee here that we need to discuss? chat have recently discovered that white ducks are a thing white ducks are a thing yeah they didn't know white ducks exist oh wow <laughs> okay yes just dropping some duck lore. i yeah. picked white ducks just because i didn't want to go a duck with a green head and brown wings and it's just like i didn't want to go through Explain that whole the exactly uh, and it's so just simplistically calling it a white i should just pick swans would have yeah. made it a lot easier i'm sorry or geese i don't know awesome all right well if we're done with that, next up is um, something for Sherlock Owl here. And, uh, of course, for everyone as well, but this is especially for Sherlock Owl. We have the archetypal analysis of Coraline coming up here. So this is the Coraline movie, um, and we're going to be looking at it. Now, it's important to note here, this movie is, and, and many good movies are, great movies, I should say, um, there is no way we could possibly cover all of the details in Coraline. There is a thousand different angles and ways to slice the story to take away from this meaning. There's there's the psychological elements of it. There's the economic elements of it. There's the um, conspiracies of it. There's the mysteries of it. There's a, a whole world that exists within this. We're just looking at the Jungian archetypal analysis here. So um, a lot of the scenes in this are not here. A lot of the characters aren't here. We're just looking at the archetypal journey of Coraline as well as the psychological warnings that are in this movie. This is a very dark film. And I would highly, highly recommend you guys watch this movie. I don't think that... Well, this will contain spoilers, so you will know the beginning and the end of the story. However, I don't think that this knowledge is going to make your experience of the movie less impactful. I think that this will actually upgrade your experience of the movie and give you a new way of appreciating it. Um, and that might also inspire you to start using your own interpretive model and your own way of exploring the ideas. So take that in, into consideration here. Um, and so with that, I think we'll, we'll be doing some Coraline stuff here in a bit. Is there any comments, questions, or concerns that we should be uh, addressing here before we uh, move on? Let's hear. Sherlock Owl said, my teacher told me I can be a better philosopher than Aristotle. Sounds like your teacher's trying to... Uh, hype you up i mean technically speaking to aim for, right? technically speaking could you be a better philosopher than aristotle theoretically it might be possible but i would probably make sure that i'm read and understand all of aristotle first and then find his flaws first and show those flaws first before i don't know i was a demonic evil lying teacher who would go and put out lies into your head to set false ideals for yourself instead of actually 
saying to go and learn from the greats first before you magically imagine in your head that you are better than them because that's a demonic idea that comes from teachers and teachers are very evil today so be careful with that kind of stuff because yes maybe it is possible um you have zero objective evidence or proof or reasons to believe that yet so you should start getting that evidence first um and it would be um essentially child abuse for a teacher to tell a child that you can be anything you want no matter what no everyone else is wrong you can be better than them you can you can you can be better everyone can be better no that's not true that's a lie you i can't be the best jockey i'll never be the best jockey i could train for the rest of my life i will not be the best jockey it's not true it's it's a it's a flat out lie and it's a very sick and demonic lie because it sounds nice until you start considering the consequences of it. So be very careful with these evil ideas that teachers put out, especially this false positivity movement of everything is possible. You can do anything. Um, OK, <laughs> it's just like you can do everything if you're willing to put in your efforts to it, accept the consequences, accept the competition and have the natural talents, have the natural gift are in the right place at the right time. These are all factors that come into play. Um, what I think a good teacher would have told you is you can be a great philosopher. That's it. Full stop. You can be a better philosopher of where you are now in a year. You could be a better philosopher tomorrow than you are today. Just start working on it. And every day you can look at where you were the day before and where you're at now and compare yourself to that instead of looking at Aristotle and saying, gosh, I'm not Aristotle. And, you know, sometimes it's good to have that, too. Having Aristotle over your head to remind you of how inferior you are, I think that's beneficial to go up and you see Aristotle and you say, man, I'm so great. Look at all this stuff I figured out. I'm so smart. Oh, right. Arist Aristotle, right? He uh, figured that all out like 2,000 years ago, and it's actually way more accurate than mine. Oh, I, I got a long ways to go. And that's a helpful tool. But... If you're looking for comparisons, you shouldn't be comparing yourself to other people. Um, you should compare yourself to who you are and then to what God holds as your highest ideal. What is the best that you can be based on the lot God has provided you? So that would that would be my reaction to that, that horrifying teacher, quote unquote, teacher in air quotes there. Um, so apparently, even if you use the white swan example, mm -hmm. the Australians would have been confused. Dang it. Because Athena's owl says, as usual, Australia likes to stick it to biologists. We only have black swans. <laughs> only Australia black is swans. literally a black swan country. You guys need to leave. <laughs> I read the I book. Know. You guys need to get out. <laughs> For those of you who are not aware, The Black Swan is a book that's about how there are unforeseen things that can just happen. There's no way to predict them, and they're absolutely catastrophic. And we call these events Black Swans. And um, what do we do to prevent that? So, like, for example, getting struck by a meteor would be a Black Swan event or a, a deadly virus that kills one out of two people that just emerges and is spreadable like the flu. Like, imagine the beer sniffle virus, but if it was actually deadly and killed people. Like, that would be an example of Black Swan event. So I'm just making a joke there. Now I have to explain it because not everyone read the book, and it's, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. I'm also realizing um, we're only at four hours or four hours. What I'm saying, it's, we're only at four o'clock. Um, 
and this is our last segment before Slendy. Yeah. So maybe we, we right? I mean, we've been doing this for four hours, but still. Oh, hold on. There you go. Sherlock Owl says, Aristotle had some pretty rough things to say about people like her. Her teacher. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I believe he had a lot to say about people. Well, I think, forget what Aristotle had to say about teachers uh, who mislead, mislead the youth and call themselves teachers and put themselves into positions of authority, I think we should look at what the Son of God had to say about those kinds of people. Because you think of Jesus, and you hear, Jesus, the Son of God, he's love. It's all love and kindness and acceptance. Um, the Son of God said, teachers who call put themselves into positions of authority over young children, calling themselves teachers, and mislead the youth, are better off having a weight tied around their throat and then thrown off the edge of a boat to be sunk to the bottom of the sea and pecked to death by the creatures under the ocean. That's what the son of God, the loving God has to say about people like this. So yeah, I, I'm not exactly a fan of lying evil teachers in a sadistic church of Satan like school system, not one bit. And uh, there's a reason we are at war with them and uh, they will fall, and the alternatives will come, and I will assure that that happens, or I will die working to make that happen. I will burn this system down, and I will present alternatives, because it cannot continue on. It's unacceptable, and does that mean it won't always exist in some form or another? Of course, but hey, why don't you take a look at college attendance since I started my war? Remember when you were predicting Back in 2010, how many people were going to graduate? How many new college students there were going to be? I don't know. Maybe you should just look at those trend charts. I'm not saying I'm responsible for it. I'm just saying maybe when the wizard's eye is upon something and he's a professional world-class persuader, you shouldn't rule it out, especially when he likes to operate in the shadows and doesn't care about the fame. Just saying. <laughs> so Coraline, Coraline, woo! All right, I am excited as well. Let's get started here, then, shall we? So, um, let's update that. I don't know. Do we need the lights on? I don't know. We'll leave it on. It's not going to affect it. But yeah. All right. So Coraline. So Coraline starts off um, very, very, very dark. Um, this is the intro scene that we see for Coraline. So you come in and you're introduced to a person who's living in poverty, complete poverty. And it's a horror story of her life. Um, and the horror story is that of monotony, which is very rarely seen in media. You don't often see monotony portrayed as the horror, but in Coraline, that is the horror here that we're first introduced to is um, realistic poverty and monotony. And it shows us a glimpse into the hells that are created in the lower classes of society. Um, they're moving into a new apartment and it's a very bad neighborhood. It has scary neighbors and it's a very old, musty house that they're renting a room in. Um, in, in this apartment it's um 
it's very realistic. It's a very realistic portrayal of poverty. I think they said it's a 129-year-old house, so it's just giving you this idea. It's this ancient, old, rickety, musty, moldy house that they're moving into, and it's in a very bad part, uh, a very cheap, I should say, low, low-cost low area to live. Uh, Okibis has something to say here. Let's hear what she's got. Athena's Owl asks, do you recommend skipping this segment until he's seen the movie? No, no. So, um... This will contain spoilers in the sense that um, you will know the beginning and the end of the story. Uh, that being said, we are only taking a very small slice of the story. So I'm only looking at the Jungian archetype specifically in relationship to Coraline. So I think it will upgrade the perspective of the movie for when you watch it. You'll be able to see that archetypal Jungian archetype in the movie. Um, but it, I don't think it will take away from the movie personally. But if you'd like to uh, watch it first and then watch this, no problem with doing that either. I just think that um, the way because we're, we're stripping out a lot. We're not going over the majority of the characters. We're just focusing in on the archetypal journey of Coraline and and specifically from a Jungian perspective. So um, it, it is very reduced. You know, it'd be kind of like reading not even the cliff notes of the movie. It wouldn't do it just it'd be like the wikipedia article of the movie i think would be if you're t talking about it from like a story plot line perspective versus um but what i'm trying to do is instead get a lot more depth into the the union aspects awesome all right so uh Coraline, so she starts off in complete poverty and the horror story that we're being told is basically a horror of monotony and we're looking into the hell that's created in lower class societies. So these people are moving into yet another house, always having to move because the rent gets increased. So they move into a new apartment and moving into an area with scary neighbors. It's an old musty house. It's, it's very cheap. It's a 129 year old house at all. All the signs that you would expect from a classic poverty situation. And what I found very, very shocking about this is it's not an unbelievable portrayal of horror either this isn't some cartoonish portrayal of please sir can i have some more and oh look at the poor victims they're so sick oh they're all so sick it's nothing like that at all but instead it's it, it as if it, it's as if it's a snapshot into the real life scenarios that real people deal with in poverty on a daily basis and it, it makes it very realistic and it's very scary in that regard and more importantly what i found very interesting is it's also a snapshot into all of the mistakes that the poor people are making that keeps them perpetually in the state that they're in and so it's a very um it's a very telling lesson i i find that watching Coraline is probably an extremely valuable thing that every to be parent or um current parents should watch because this is a telling tale of a hell that you can create in your life today and these people are living it out and so we see this portrayal of their poverty poverty and then we're immediately introduced to the daughter her name is Coraline that's this girl right here and she immediately the first thing she does on the scene she shows up to this new house is she grabs a dowsing rod and she begins to find whatever it is her heart 
guides her to. And that's what a dowsing rod is. So a dowsing rod is basically, um, it's a tool for tapping into your subconscious. So the same way that we use uh, the pendulum here. I don't, I don't have one. I could use this necklace. I don't know. Maybe the fairies took it. Oh, you got it? No? So the same way that we use the pendulum here as a as a dowsing tool as a tool for communicating with the subconscious a dowsing rod does a similar thing by following your gut you're following your instincts and seeing where it can go now it's important to note your subconscious isn't god your subconscious isn't super powerful and unable to make mistakes um it, it can be just as easily tricked as you it's not god it's not a spirit it's part of who you are it's just a part of your essence and so <clears throat> it's important when we use these things that we don't trust them as reliability but they can be a very useful tool for connecting with your instincts or perhaps um, you could even argue that it's not connecting with yourself on a more spiritual level letting uh, letting that guide you but it's important that when we use these things that this force that we are seeking out is either the truth God or from our own subconscious. We do not want to just openly allow things into our life and say, I am coming in here with the intention of something guiding me because that is an invitation for spirits to enter into our lives and to cause us problems. But that being said, from the Jungian perspective, we see Coraline is trying to seek out a, a deeper meaning because she lives in this poverty state this hell of a life. So the first thing she does in her life is immediately taps into her soul and reaches out for deeper meaning through the use of a dowsing rod. Now, if you, um, <clears throat> so now this immediately starts leading her into very dangerous territory. And there's, uh, there's loud, there's thunder and lightning, there's prowling creatures, there's some what appears to be some sort of stalker following her along this journey, um, which is very common. When you start trusting God, when you start trusting your instincts and living that life, you start to find out this world is filled with uh, immense adventure. There's a lot of danger. There's a lot of horror. Um, there's also a lot of fun and a lot of excitement. This is not just a all sunshine and rainbows journey. And Coraline is experiencing that, but she continues to trust her heart and is eventually led to a mysterious, magical spot. And so the dowsing rod appears to have worked. It led her to this spot and introduces her to a new person as well. Did you update that? Awesome. All right. And so what we find out here is that um, so we arrive at this spot here um, and she finds this magical well, um, but we don't really know how it ties in. But we're going to find out that it does eventually tie in in the end. So that's a classic Jungian example is trusting your heart to find out that it becomes the thing that saves you in the end. And we'll look into that in a bit. But. After she finds this magical place, she descends back into hell of her everyday life. And we get a glimpse of the hell that Coraline lives in. And it's a modern hell. Her mother and father sit away, typing away, day in and day out, zombified by computer work. They're both working, and they're both ignoring Coraline. Her own mother 
responds to her when she sits there and says, I went out and I found this well and I almost fell in it. I could have died. It was a deep well and it was very scary. And her mother simply staring at her screen goes, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, that's nice to her own admittance of possibly dying. So she's surrounded by these family members who don't listen to her, don't care, stare away, zombified by their screens, consumed by their careers, and letting this child go basically parentless. She's she's an abandoned child with parents living there, just these drones staring at these screens. It's absolutely abysmal. Yeah, absolutely abysmal. And I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a total gut shot to parents or future parents because, I mean, you really got to see this portrayal here because nothing that they're portraying about this hell is unrealistic this is something that you can easily create in your own life this is a real horror of life it's portraying something that you are just a few choices away from this can be created with just a few bad choices and here's the scariest part our current society is actively encouraging this to happen we're trying to push more people towards this lifestyle and it's it's a scathing critique on it i think and it's important for people to look into it um it, it's dark because do you sacrifice your existence and your life and your child for your career do both the parents do that is that something that you're willing to contend with are you willing to accept the fact that to have both of you pursue your careers while having children is going to mean that this is likely to happen. And it's a devastatingly frightening perspective indeed. So it's, it's the choice it's telling you, it's like, look, you guys both want to live your high profile career life and have the family and do it all. Well, are are you willing to pay the cost? And Coraline really highlights the cost very, very clearly. And this hell is really solidified, and it's not just tragic when she actually meets her father later on, because she goes and sees her father, who similarly is just typing away at the computers, typing, typing, typing away. He's sickly. He's gross. He's rotting. The screen is consuming his health, his time, his life, and his love for his daughter. She's just trying to say, I went on this adventure. I saw this cool thing. Ignores her, ignores her. Finally, she says, why don't you ever listen? He turns around, says, okay, I'll acknowledge you. And he creates this fictional task for her so that she'll leave him alone. So I'm going to busy her with some busy work so she leaves me alone. And what he leaves out from this task, he says, go find out how many boards are in this home. How many windows are there? Uh, tell me how many, uh, what the colors of the walls are, just arbitrary details. And what he leaves out is the purpose. He doesn't give her a purpose. This isn't a reason for this. He's just giving her tedious task to do to waste her time away so she doesn't leave, so she leaves him alone. And it's like, come on, man, like be a father. You're going to, I get it. You're busy. You're at work. Take the extra second to say, hey, Coraline, could you go and see if there's any leaky pipes so that I can know what to pick up at the hardware store next time we go? Give her purpose. Give her meaning. Give her something of value. Because, and and this is, this is devastating torture. And, and I, I don't want you to think I'm exaggerating here because literally the torture camps in the Soviet Union 
used this tactic to break the souls of the people in camps. They would have them pick up bags of sand and salt and move them from one side of a field to another, only to turn around, pick up the same bag, and bring it back. Why did they choose that? Because if you move the bags of sand to go help build something, you're contributing to a purpose. If you pick up the bag and bring it back, your suffering is for the sake of suffering alone. That's literally the same tactic the Soviet unions used to break the souls of people. And that's what's being employed on Coraline on, on a, obviously a much smaller level, but still it, it absolutely sickening. And so we see Coraline is in this very, very dark place. And, you know, rightly so, is seeking out the spiritual to escape. That's the first thing she does, grabs a dowsing rod and heads out to try and find deeper meaning to escape where she lives. And so that's when Coraline begins to descend into the Jungian dream realm. So we see Coraline starts to fall asleep and her dreams start to become of this imaginary world. She starts creating this magic world that's connected to her house through a secret door in her dreams. And in this dream world, everything is perfect. She has her mother is staying at home, cooking food for her, making delicious meals. Uh, her parents treat her with love and attention. They're still working. It's a realistic portrayal, but they take the time to do the right thing. They express their love and care for her. They make beautiful, they take time to play games with her, to give her personal development. All the things a child needs from a family, she's getting in this dream world. But there's one exception, and it's that the people who exist in this realm, all things that are alive, aren't real people. They're dolls, and they have doll eyes, button eyes. And that is how you can distinguish between the real creatures and the false creatures. And despite the fact that everything here is right out of a dream of what you would expect for a... the archetypal dream life you can't help but just feel like something is off this whole time in this dream realm despite everything being good it still has this dark lurking waiting fear that's there it's almost like it's too good to be true and, and i think it ties in with this button eyes not real dynamic and so Coraline awakens back into the real world and we get the classic union descendants into the spirit world through the form of the dream. So this becomes an ongoing thing that occurs for Coraline. She uh, wakes up from her dream and is in the real world and she's looking around and is back in hell and she suffers in that hell and it sucks and she she's trying her best. And that's another thing about Coraline is she is a noble hero. She takes these pains with stride. She is not victimizing herself. She wakes up and endures the hell and then descends back into the dream world in her dreams uh, and over and over again and is introduced into this this dynamic of, gosh, man, when I reawaken into the real world, this place is really depressing. You know, I kind of I kind of really like this dream world a lot more. You know, if, if you look at the contrast, this world is dull. It's boring. It sucks. It's, it's awful. And now 
once again, I have to come back into this real world of hell and, and it's just over and over again. And as she's having these experiences, as she is getting more and more distant from the real world and more and more entranced with this fantasy world she's invented, she starts to express this to her family and parents. And, 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 Sorry, poked a button there. And so she goes to express this to her parents. And this is the scene here where she expresses it to her parents. And, and she's telling them, it's like, no, no, no. There was this wonderful world. You were in it. And and you made us food. And, and, and dad read me a bedtime story. And everyone, but everyone was fake and had button eyes. But, but other than that, you know, they, they was, it was so great. And we chatted and we had fun. And, and we talked about our feelings and stuff at dinner. And we, we said prayers. And his mother, her Coraline's mother and father just, uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Wow, that's cool. Oh, yeah. Nice dream you had there. Wow, that's weird. Not a single word going into their heads, completely ignored, not listening to her. She's sitting here crying out, this is what I need from my life. This is what I crave. This is what is coming out of my dreams. Can you please solve this problem? Your child is screaming out to you that they aren't getting love. They aren't getting attention. They don't feel like they're being fed. They don't feel like they're being heard. They don't feel like they have a purpose. So could you please listen, please? Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. Oh, wow. Nice dream you have there. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so this process just goes on and on and Coraline's getting tortured in her hell life and then rewarded in this fantasy life. And that's the dynamic, this descent descent into the dream world, rise back into hell. Descent into the dream world, rise back into hell. And every time she descends into the dream world, it becomes a little bit more enticing, a little bit more persuasive, to say the least. Yes. Um, so this process continues um, and she learns at she, she's basically starting to realize that she can actually enter into this dream world, not just through sleep, but she can actually enter into the dream world through special portals. So obviously the union parallel here is she's learning to dissociate into a fantasy world. She's learning to float away into her fantasy. She created this delusion in her mind from the dreams of this fantasy world and now she's starting to like that fantasy more than she likes um, her real life and so she's dissociating she's coming out of this world and figuring out how can I start to delve into my fantasies in my everyday life and each time she goes into that realm that that constant reminder is there of wow this fantasy is so wonderful and my real life really really sucks maybe i should just stay in this fantasy forever and this lines up psychologically with how dangerous and poisonous this ideology is of this uh, concept you you see this taught in schools all the time the grass is greener on the other side other people have it better than you Man, other people's lives sure looks great, doesn't it? We can imagine someone else's life is so much better the more we create this fantasy of another realm that these other people live in that's perfect. And we start to imagine this fantasy life they live. Uh, we see it on the TV that they're living this wonderful life. We go scroll through social media. Everything's a party. Everyone's getting married. Everything's a party. Everything's wonderful. Everything's a celebration. Everything's a vacation photo. 
what's wrong with my life? My life's not vacation every day. My life is in a party every day. Why do they get to do that? Because what you're looking at isn't real. It's a persona. It's all a lie. And you've created this fantasy in your head. And you start comparing yourself to this fantasy. And you start saying, well, I want that fantasy. I'm enticed by that fantasy. It's persuasive. It's starting to take over your life. And we look around, we see this beautiful fantasy played out for us on social media and on TV and in movies. And then we come back to our lives. And I have to wake up at eight and I have to go clocking at that job and I have to work for eight hours. (sighs) Why can't I just fly around the world and go to space like Elon Musk does? Because you don't see the hundred hour work week that Elon Musk does. You see a five minute highlight clip on Twitter. That's why. He has suffering too. There is darkness in his life as well. Immense suffering. And you don't get to see that side of things. So you create a fantasy that you compare yourself against. You're comparing yourself against something that doesn't exist. And so that leads us into this core central thesis here of the philosophy of Coraline. And it's basically the question is, is it better to sacrifice my real family, the real people, for a fantasy? Is it better to suffer in hell with a real family or is it better to have a fake family and live in a fantasy world? And as you might guess, this fantasy, like all devil offers, has a hidden cost that doesn't seem like a big deal until you start to look into the consequences. And so the answer to that comes to us in this movie as well. Because for Coraline to become a permanent residence of her fantasy world that she's developed, she's asked and required to sacrifice her eyes. She must cut out her eyes and replace them for buttons and become a doll. But, like all devil offers are, she must do it of her own free will. She can't have this forced upon her. She has to choose the fantasy. She has to choose to remove her eyes and replace them with buttons of her own free will to be accepted into the fantasy realm. And Sherlock Owl actually brilliantly deduced this point. She posted in the Discord, the eyes represent the windows into the soul. And and that's deeply profound because basically what the movie is telling us here is the cost to live in this delusional fantasy world is to literally give up your soul. You have to give up the truth. You have to become as fake as a doll if you want to live in the fantasy world of the dolls. If you want to live that social media fantasy, you have to become someone who's fake and you have to lie too because the story isn't real. It's a persona. You aren't always partying. You aren't always on vacation. You aren't always at weddings. It's not all sunshine and rainbows. So in order to become that, you have to become something you're not. You have to give up your soul and become something false. That's very scary because most people don't realize that that's the choice they're making. This is why a big point of what I'm trying to emphasize in culture is I'm a character. I am a character. There's a disclaimer in the beginning. That's not a joke. It's not just to get me out of trouble, people. I am a character. 
I acknowledge that. This is different for who I am in the real world. That is everybody. But if you don't acknowledge that, when I sit down and I turn this camera on, I know I'm being someone different than who I really am. If you're not conscious of that, this persona can take over and destroy your life. And you see this with all the actors and actresses, drug addiction, suicide rates. It's just phenomenal. You might ask yourself, it's like, how is Johnny Depp so sad? He has a private island. He's got these beautiful homes. He's living his dream. He lives his art. He never has to worry about money again. Well, yeah, he does. But guess what? He also has divorce. He also has sickness. He also has bankruptcy. He also has addictions. You don't see that side of the story. And that's what you got to realize here. Very, very important stuff. So the lesson here is basically to attain the fake fantasy that we imagine our lives could be. We too have to become someone of, or something equally fake to have that fantasy. And so Coraline begins to catch on to this when she is presented with the buttons for her eyes and the fake mother. There's a fake mother in this realm who is modeled after her true mother. But the difference being is she's an evil witch who is a doll with, with button eyes. Um, and I'm calling her the fake mother in this context. Uh, watch the movie and it'll make more sense. So uh, she pretends to be understanding and OK with Coraline's decision to not take the buttons right away just like satan would be she specifically says it's fine it's okay Coraline. you can make the choice for yourself i will just keep being the best mother i can be and i hope that you'll choose me that is a classic satan's offer right there my friend i mean can you imagine a more just cut right to the chase of the satanic offer Look how wonderful and beautiful and amazing your career could be. I'm going to have you on all of the television stations. There won't be a talk show that you're not on, man. You're going to be having your name, not just in lights. You're going to be trending on Twitter. You're never going to have to worry about money again. You're going to have women in your DMs for the rest of your life. All you have to do is just help us with this little political thing, man. And I know you believe in it. You believe in the free market, don't you? You think people have a choice, right? So why don't you want to support them making a choice? It's fine. You know what? Why don't you sleep on it? Here's the contract. Think it over. Anything more. It, 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 it's so transparent. It's such, a, it's such a transparent trick once you start to see through the lies of Satan. And he always follows this craft. There seems to be some sort of deep magic to it where he's not allowed to just trick you. He's not allowed to just steal it from you. You have to choose it. It's very odd. Very, very odd. So Coraline realizes this trick. And because she trusts her heart and because she is not corrupted, she's able to see through the deception. And she says, no, absolutely not. I'm choosing hell over the fantasy. I do not want a part of this. I'm done. And so she goes to leave. But... As she goes to leave, unfortunately, Coraline is now going to go through this classic Jungian example. Because once you descend into the dream world, what always happens? We can't just come back from the dream world. We have to save the people who fell into the dream world, right? We have to not just redeem ourselves, but we have to redeem everybody else. And so as she's escaping this trap, she encounters the ghost 
of the children who didn't make the choice. The ghost of the children who were corrupted by Satan, that chose to remove their eyes and to give in to the buttons, to give up their souls. And now they are trapped in this world permanently. Even though they have passed on, they still linger in this realm for eternity because their souls have been trapped away. And so uh, Coraline has to redeem these children and uh, save their souls as well, along as her, uh, along with her own. So we see that these kids um, didn't see through the deception, and they literally lose their souls from it, and um, th they get corrupted and stuck in the fantasy, which now has become a hell of its own. And the the fantasy became hell. Did I forget that? Awesome. And isn't that a really chilling prospect? If you if you allow yourself to imagine a future fantasy of someone else or even yourself for too long, you can literally become trapped by that fantasy world in your head and it literally can trap your soul. That's pretty scary, right? <laughs> pretty, pretty scary. It, it's a scary warning. And, but it also, isn't it true though? Because you know, studies show this isn't far off from an accurate portrayal of depression. A lot of people's depression, envy, and resentment is based from imagined worlds of perfection that other people live because of social media. They, they see this creative persona that isn't real. They compare it to their own life, and they say, well, my life is pretty much garbage. You see people's brightest sides, best sides compared to your own, and it, it all just starts to cause you to feel awful about yourself. And... You ask yourself, you know, why why is my life not good? Um, you know, what what am I doing wrong? Why is my life not an unending stream of victories, celebrations, and excitement? And it's because you're comparing yourself to something that doesn't exist. And this movie nails it because the witch responsible for all of this has her true form actually revealed. And she turns out to be a spider a spider-like creature who weaves webs and entices people in with fantasies and lies. Doesn't that sound exactly like the demonic force that we're, we're talking about here? I mean, can you think of a more archetypally embodying of that force of crafting the perfect fantasy world to entice you and showing how wonderful your life could be? Come here, come closer, come on, come into, the, come into my web. Shh, everything's gonna be okay. I just, all you need to do is give up the truth and look at what could be yours. And then once you're stuck in the web, man, it's a hard place to escape. And that spider has lured you in, enticed you in, and now she's going to kill you. Absolutely terrifying. But by trusting Coraline's instincts, she was able to overcome this problem because she's able to go in and escape the dream world after redeeming the souls of the children who had fallen before her and following her heart. Remember in the beginning, she trusted her heart with the dowsing rod. She runs back to that original place that her heart originally guided her towards and finds within that place the solution to defeating the spider, which is to toss its body into this endless hole that teleports into this magical realm that can never be uh, recovered and so this her heart guided her to the truth all of along and so 
finally, um, finally, after Coraline returns from the fantasy world, she saved the souls of the lost children. They're able to pass on. And as you guys can imagine, if you've read Jung or if you've listened to Jordan Peterson, what else has to happen? You got to save your father from the belly of the whale. We all know it's coming. So, of course, her family, uh, her mother and father get trapped in the fantasy world. She has to save them as well. And and she goes about doing that, saves them, resurrecting the family and uh, bringing them out from the fantasy world, saving the, bo- the father from the belly of the beast. Now, the fairy witch demon prison, it, it's a fairy witch demon prison dream world place but it's it's the same thing it's the belly of a beast you know that that's the the archetype if you will and i'm, I'm not saying that she's literally consumed by a whale is i guess what i'm trying to get at she's taken into a fairy witch demon prison area um but at the very end we actually get a final message and um this cat right here on the screen you see the arrow pointing at him um, he's he's a major part of the story. He basically acts as the Cheshire cat of this story. Um, he only has this ability to teleport in the fictional world created by the fairy, the fantasy world. Um, however, at the end, after she saved her father from the belly of the well, um, she her life is redeemed, everything is restored, and happiness is now brought into her hell. Her hell is transformed into a place of beauty and, and wonder. Uh, it, it becomes a, a better life, a realistic life, but a better one nonetheless. And this cat disappears. And so the thought, the conspiratorial thought is, this is just another trap from the fairy queen. She's created another fantasy to try and catch Coraline. But from, and, and that's the dark end of the story, right? But from the psychological and philosophical perspective, I think that there's actually a deeper implication as well. And it's it's almost something like, hey, just because you escaped the hell of your fantasy doesn't mean you get to reassign yourself to living in hell again. You're, you've got to start making the real world into the fantasy, but you have to put the work in to do it. And I, I think that that's kind of what we're trying to say here is how does Coraline escape the hell? Because the hell is unacceptable that she lives in. She can't choose the easy way out. She can't just invent a fantasy world and dissociate off into that fantasy. You can't accomplish things that way. Instead, you have to accept that you are currently in a state of hell but you are not eternally doomed to that fate. And you have to accept that you can't invent a fantasy world that doesn't exist to compare yourself to. But instead, what you have to do is accept the hell that you're in and you have to start doing the hard work now. And oftentimes that work is impossible to do. It won't ever be able to be accomplished. But you have to start working one step at a time to take the hell that you're in and start making it a little bit more like paradise every single day. And every step of the way is going to be an ongoing struggle. It's going to be a battle. It's not going to be something that happens overnight. And the question isn't, will I ever achieve this paradise I imagined? But instead, how high can I climb? How close to paradise could I get? How good could my life be? If I just start trying to make my life a little less like hell every day and maintain that. 
That's how you achieve paradise. That's how you escape. You don't descend into the worlds of the fantasies and you don't accept the hell that you live in. You instead say, you know what? Maybe I'll just learn how to cook some eggs. My mom's cooking sucks. She pulls out a bunch of trash. She takes canned canned crap and and some boiled cabbage. It's the nastiest slop. I'll just learn how to make eggs. I'll make breakfast for the family. They're busy. I'll make breakfast. That's one step. And then what if what if the next day you set another goal and you say, you know what, guys, it's extremely important to me that our family is what matters most. Can we please find a way to set aside one hour a week to just sit down and and talk? That's one step forward. And if she does that for a year, imagine how much farther out of hell their family could crawl. And along the way, she's going to meet resistance. She's going to find out her father doesn't want to set aside an hour. He's busy working. Neither does her mother. It's going to be a battle. It's going to be an argument. It's going to be a fight. But that's your choice. Do you choose to make that fight and make the reality better? Or do you accept your hell? Or do you descend into the fantasy world that will kill you and steal your soul? And that's the question that Coraline asks, and that's the solution that they propose, and that's the archetypal analysis of Coraline. So, woo, there we go. That's Coraline. Let's see here. Let's get OPVs off the unmuzzled. All right, let's. What do we got? What is your favorite character from this movie? <sighs> what is my favorite character from this movie? I'd probably have to go with Coraline. Yeah, Coraline. She's one of. She's a good one. Yeah. 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 I like her. I like the cat. You like the cat? Yeah, you would. You would the like the Cheshire cat. cat. It's just a cat. You gross. He's helpful though. Yeah, he's helpful though. He's also got like a weird. He he's a trickster god. It's very interesting. He's got the Loki archetype. Yeah. The 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 Cheshire cat is the the true archetype here, but still. He looks a little grungy, but. Very grungy creature. Yeah. He's nasty. So how's the chat feeling? How are they thinking? Well, Sherlock loved this. Oh, good. Segment. I'm glad to hear that. Glad to hear that too. I was worried. She likes Mr. Bobinski. Mr. That's the, the circus guy. Circus guy, right? Yeah. Yes. Oh, the, and we don't have any of that even in here. So, guy, uh, there's so much of the story that is not included in here that when you watch the movie, you're going to be like, wait, what about all of this? Just trust me. <laughs> like, there's archetypal references to the fairy lore all embedded throughout this. There's the fairy seeing stone, there's fairy circles, uh, Celtic mythology. There's an entire there's act lot. out of a play from William Shakespeare and Greek mythology. It's There is a lot that goes into the symbolism of this movie. I just wanted to focus in on I could go watch the movie again and come up with an entire another presentation just like this on a totally different aspect of this movie. So um, there, there's a lot that's in here. I just wanted to focus in on just that 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 aspect because yeah. I found it so so real and so relevant and so telling for the for for a person because this is a portrayal of a real hell that does exist and is only a few choices away from the average modern person from creating. This is not a, um, this isn't Jason running around with a chainsaw. This isn't uh, the, the dream guy coming around, stabbing you in your dreams. This is real life horror that actually exists. And you can come out of that hell by just making the right choice, by just saying, I'm going to give Coraline some purpose. You know what? I have to cook every day. Why don't I watch a YouTube video to improve? 
why not? Let's take that extra step, just that one extra step. And you do that enough, and, and suddenly your life, even if you're in poverty, even if you're in a bad neighborhood, well, inside your home, you have the kingdom of God. You might be in a bad neighborhood. You might be in a place with bad neighbors. You might be in an old home. That might be all you can afford. But inside your home, it's the kingdom of God. And that's possible for everyone in any circumstance. Any person can achieve that. No, Everyone will suffer in life. But there is a difference between the suffering that is the nature of this existence and the suffering that is self-inflicted. And it, it is a good pursuit for you to try and eliminate as much suffering that is of your own cause as possible. Um, and I think that that's something that God calls us to do with creating the kingdom of God. And so, and, and Coraline talks about it very clearly. So it's a good moral, good moral. Really good story. Great story. Yes, definitely. All right. So that that's Coraline. So we're, we're, we're done. That's our segments for the day. Um, wow. So it's, it's a little bit less time than usual. Um, just a bit. So, gosh, do we start with Slendy now? Yeah, I mean, we might be able to finish Slendy if we start now. Maybe. Definitely. All right. So how, how is the chat feeling about this? How are we doing? Feeling good. Sherlock Owl says she is currently on her trampoline. Ooh, nice. She says, so cool. Trampolines are legit. I'm a, I'm a big fan. so comfy. I think that that would probably be one of the first purchases when we buy our land is yeah. to get a big trampoline. trampoline it's just such a great way to lose weight too the exercise the ac exercise and it doesn't feel like you're exercising because you're just having fun but man the cardio you get on a trampoline is crazy it, it's it's almost yeah. a full body workout it's very dangerous though you know life has risk that's that's part of life <laughs> Sherlock Owl said, um, there are no old people out here to spray me with the hose. Nice. That's well, that's good. good. That's very good. But, well, she might get spooked by Slendy Man, though. She's not on her trampoline. 